Okay, excellent. <clears throat> Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number 17 at the end of our marathon read through the Return of the Shadow, longest Mythgard Academy class ever. And tonight is the final night, so that'll be exciting. The only question uh, really is uh, when we are going to finish tonight, because <laughs> tonight we're finishing the book one way or another. Um, uh, yeah. So okay. All right. So b quick announcement. First, just to uh, I, I'm sure you guys, I have mentioned this before, and uh, so I see you guys have been taking bets on this. Uh, usually, yeah. There's a, there's usually a sort of a betting pool on this. Well, you won't have to. No no wagers will be placed on how many slides I'm going to get through tonight because the answer is all of them. All of them. I've got 18 slides and we're doing the lot tonight. So that's 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 what's going to happen. Um, but so okay. Our next book, though, this is the important thing. Our next book is Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy, which I'm very excited about. So um, here's, uh, here's, here's, here's the story. Now, there are two really important questions that people have been asking very sensibly about our Con Consolation of Philosophy class for the Mythgard Academy. Number one, uh, uh, which translation are we using? And number two, when are we starting? So let's start with the second one because that's very simple. Uh, we're going to start on Wednesday, May 10th. Wednesday, May 10th, so we're not meeting, obviously, next week uh, or the week after that. I'm going to be traveling both of those weeks anyway, so that would have been kind of dodgy. But the week after that, so May 10th, Wednesday, May 10th, will be the first day of the Boethius class. Your reading for the first day of class will be book one of the Consolation of Philosophy. It's only five books long. It's a very short book, right? It's not going to take us 17 weeks to do this. I do think it'll probably take us seven weeks because I'm going to do one book per class, um, but I'm going to leave a couple classes in the middle for catching up and, or, you know, like one of the middle and what at the end for catching up and uh, questions and extra discussion and stuff like that. So, okay. So book one of the Consolation of Philosophy for uh, May, the May 10th class. Now, the other question is what translation, because we are going to read it in English translation. It's written in Latin, of course, in a mixture of, of poetry and prose. And uh, that's a slightly more complicated question because I'm sort of of two minds on that. So let me let me give you two different translations, and you can kind of make up your own mind. Uh, there's one translation which has much to recommend it uh, is the is the uh, the much older translation by H. R. James. The uh, primary things that it has to recommend it are one, uh, it's in the public domain, and therefore you can get it for free as an ebook on Project Gutenberg. So if you look up the Consolation of Philosophy on Project Gutenberg, you will find the H.R. James translation. Really easy, really accessible for everybody. You can get it for free. So that's a really nice feature. It is also that translation that is used on the Audible uh, unabridged audiobook recording, which is also a nice advantage uh, to the H.R. James translation. Uh, but here's the downside. Um, I can't actually myself use that translation, at least not all the way through. And here's the reason why. Um, it does one of my hugest pet peeves when it comes to trans. Okay. So an English translation that is translating poetry from another language and translates it into rhyming English couplets is one of my biggest like pet peeves. It I, drives me absolutely crazy. We know, look, it's a known thing, right? You can't translate poetic te techniques from one language to another. I mean, it's almost like a one of the definitions of poetry, right? Something that doesn't translate. Uh, <laughs> you just can't translate it directly into another language. Um, so, 
don't fake it. Like if you're if, if it's in verse in Latin and you put it in verse in English, you've got to do stuff to it. You can't just render what's there. You're not going to be able to render the poetry anyway. So trying to render it into English verse is just a complete waste of time because you're taking it from one form of poetry and translating it into a totally different form of poetry. So it's not like you're representing the actual poetic techniques that were there in the original anyway. No, instead what you're doing is imposing a completely different set of poetic techniques upon it and thereby straining the text in many places totally out of recognition drives me bananas. You can't represent the poetry anyway, so just translate it into English prose for crying out loud. At least, if you can't give us the verse, which you can't, at least give us a faithful translation of the text and not some bottlerized thing that you have forced into meter. Drives me crazy. So, anyway... So I can't, and, and, and the H.R. James translation does that. It's a classic sort of 19th century, almost all 19th century English poetic trans, translations do that. It was a standard thing. Absolutely loathe that technique. Um, so I absolutely cannot use the poetry translations of H.R. James. I won't, because I'll spend my whole time whining about it, and you guys have to hear me like be all cranky about it for the entire class. And I, I want to focus on Boethius and his uh, and his uh, uh, thought rather than focusing on my annoyance at the poetry of his translator. So, uh Yes. Okay. So this is, yes. I'm glad you appreciate my little rant there, Tom, but okay. All right. Glad I got that off my chest. So here's the other translation that I recommend. It's not free. It's not in the public domain, but it's also very readily available. It's the one I've used many times uh, in class. And that is uh, the English translation uh, by Dover Publications. Uh, The translation is by Richard H. Green. Um, This is easily available in paperback on Amazon for like seven bucks. Um, and you can probably get it used for even cheaper. So uh, it's, it's, it's easy to get. It's cheap. Uh, it's got nice prose translations uh, uh, of which I approve. Uh, so this is, this is the one I'm probably going to be using uh, for my slides and stuff. Uh, so just to – go ahead and get that off my chest. So I'm, I'm going to be using this. It's to, if you want to use the H.R. James, it's totally fine. I won't, I won't think the less of you. Again, it's freely available, and it's what's on Audible, so I'm probably going to be listening to it too, uh, though it's going to annoy me. But anyhow, so it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all good. Um, just, to, just to let you know uh, that that's what's going to be happening. So Richard H. Green or H.R. James, if you like, those are the two translations that I'm sort of recommending, and, uh, and we're going to start on May 10th, and that's Boethius, all right? Okay, now... Without further ado, let us let us continue on the last leg of the Return of the Shadow as we get up to. I was really delighted, by the way, the first time I read this book to find that we came to that point because, of course, I remembered the passage in the foreword to the second edition of the Fellowship of the Ring, the, you know, the, the famous foreword that Tolkien wrote. Um, you know, where he says that he came to, you know, to, and, and you know, he was he's you know, continued the story until he stood by Balin's tomb and there he paused for a long time, right? So that that image of sort of, of Tolkien standing like as if in reverence by the tomb of Balin, right? And not writing anything for a year or two, as he said in the foreword, though, of course, as Christopher points out, the documentary evidence doesn't actually support exactly Tolkien's memory there. Um, but uh, anyway, it's I just, I, I find it absolutely delightful that Christopher got up to that exact point and then stops and, you know, we have the pause until the treason of Isengard. So it seems totally fitting. We'll take our break. We'll do Boethius and we'll come back in July. Uh, we're, we should be done by with Boethius by the end of June. 
So then when we come back in July, we'll, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up with the treason of Isengard there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so um, let's uh, let's get to it. So we're gonna we're gonna pick up with the ring goes south today. We covered the Council of Elrond stuff, um, but I want to focus on their actual journey in the ring goes south. And of course, as you will have noticed, that you know, of course, the shape of the narrative is very close to what it will eventually be. Uh, interesting to see some of these little things emerging, which stay in the published text. Um, uh, but th- even though, of course, the important thing to remember that we had so many different versions of the company, right? There were four different uh, proposed breakdowns of who was included in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but uh, in the end, one, of course, including uh, the, the, uh, the, the irrepressible Odo. But in the end, so the one that we're moving on with is the smaller version, right? The seven-man version, which is just Gandalf... Boromir and five hobbits, right, including Trotter, obviously. Uh, so, so the five hobbits being Frodo, Sam, Mary, Faramond, and uh, uh, and and Trotter. Uh, so Faramond, so Pippin still, Pippin, he's there, right? His character is there. He's been there for a while, but he hasn't found his name yet. And of course, for very good reason, because Trotter is still using his name, right? Trotter is still using Peregrine. It's still spoken for. Uh, and uh, presumably he will not get, Pippin will not get his actual name uh, until it becomes available. Um, so yeah, exactly, James. No elf, no dwarf. And we have to keep that in mind uh, as we're moving, uh, as we're moving forward here. So, Okay. Um, exactly. Yeah. No. This is. I. I really do think. Um, um, I really do think that because you know I've been talking you know a lot about you know like with Treebeard for instance about you know those characters which you know where I think it's not really accurate to say you know that Treebeard is there like no Treebeard isn't there yet there's somebody else who has his name and is similar to him in some ways but it's going you know the, the whole concept is going to change until it becomes a really a completely new thing um in this case i think it is pretty clear pippin's character is there he just doesn't have his final name yet um I, I, what he says what he much not all of what he does um and uh uh it, it, it's 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 his character just not uh, just not his name yet okay so what I want to start off looking at uh, tonight is the relationship between Gandalf and Trotter. This is one of the things that I found really fascinating uh, about the trip as it's described here, because, of course, with Aragorn and Gandalf in the published text that we're all familiar with, there's a very different dynamic between them, right? I mean, there is no question that Gandalf and Aragorn have by far higher stature, right, than everybody else in the Fellowship. I mean, the Fellowship of the Ring in the published text is like a bunch of dudes, even though, you know, Legolas is an elf and the, uh, you know, the son of the, the elven king of Mirkwood, so like he's kind of a big deal, and, and, and you know, Gimli is the son of Glowin, one of the companions of Thorin Oakenshield, and, and, and a very important dwarf, obviously, uh, in, uh, in, in Erebor, so, you know, he, he's, he's not nobody either, um, but I mean, you know, we all know you know, Boromir, of course, is important, but we all know Aragorn and and Gandalf, the, the two, they're on a different level, right? So when we see in The Ring Goes South in the published text, Aragorn and Gandalf kind of consulting with each other, um, there's nothing sort of weird about that, right? I mean, it's totally normal. Um, so it's one of the things that I was really looking forward to in uh, in as it, when I was beginning to reread this section here this time was looking at 
the relationship between Trotter and Gandalf, because it's totally different there, right? Trotter is experienced. We know that he's a friend of Gandalf's, and we know that he, you know, has had a, a, a remarkable career for a hobbit, but he is not a peer of Gandalf in the way in which Aragorn is more like. He's not still not exactly a peer of Gandalf, but he's pretty close, right? He, at le- at, there is at least the sense on which Aragorn and Gandalf are kind of operating uh, in on the on the the same level, right? Trotter and Gandalf, not so much, right? Um, they have the inequality, the inequality that you see, uh, you know, between that's even represented with by height, right? I mean, the the hobbits are like little people to everybody, um, and uh, and so here's Gandalf and 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 Trotter the Hobbit, who is not only does not have the standing and the stature, I am the heir of, of Isildur and all that stuff that Aragorn has, um, but he is also, um, he's also still distinctly hobbitish uh, and has these, you know, just, just like we were talking about last time with the, uh, uh, the, 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 you can tell, <laughs> you can tell he's the king uh, by how he helps out in the kitchen, right, in Rivendell. I mean, like, it's something that Aragorn wouldn't do, but is totally normal for Trotter. So, again, given those sort of distinctions uh, with Trotter's character, how are he and Gandalf going to get on? And it's really interesting. Of course, as we have seen so many times before, so many of the scenes, so much of the dialogue that will remain in the published text is already there, right? It's just the Hobbit Trotter instead of Aragorn saying so many of the things that Aragorn is going to carry on saying when he gets the role, right? Um, but, but again, how does this work out? What, you know, what do we see about the relationship between Gandalf and Trotter? So two passages on that. I hope that is it, said Trotter, but I get a feeling of watchfulness and of fear that I have never had here before. This is, of course, about the silence in Holland, right? When, uh, when, when, when they notice that there's no sound and, and they're like, well, maybe it's just because, you know, they're not used to seeing, you know, a bunch of us here. You'll recall that scene from the published text. Um, Trotter talks about that feeling of watchfulness and fear. Very well. Let us be more careful, said Gandalf. If you bring a ranger with you, it is best to pay attention to him, especially if the ranger is Trotter, as I have found before. There are some things that even an experienced wizard does not notice. We had better stop talking now and rest quietly and set a lookout. Now, first of all, the first and most striking thing about this passage is this is one of the ones, one of the scenes I was really wondering about. Like, how is this going to go? Because you'll recall in the published text, you know, Gandalf is saying, like, you know, if you bring a ranger with you, it's best to pay attention with him, especially if that ranger is Aragorn, right? And of course, it's like, you know, because he's Aragorn, right? And that's everybody knows. That's a huge deal. Um, so the first thing is that he still says that, right? So a notice a he's he's called a ranger, which is interesting, right? Apparently, we still haven't firmly decided on that whole rangers equal Numenorians thing that he's been um, sort of flirting with. Uh, but um, but even sort of more significantly, we still see Gandalf deferring to, I say still as if the published text came first, right? Um, We see Gandalf deferring to Trotter here, right? Delivering that same line or almost that same line, especially if that ranger is Trotter, right? So the kind of deference uh, that he gives to Trotter's experience, the fact that that's still there is to me really interesting. So uh, Trotter and Gandalf are friends. That didn't in itself sort of prove to me that, or, or lead me to, to, to expect that Gandalf would not patronize him, right? You know, he, he still does kind of patronize him, right? And that's okay, right? 
um, you know, that's that that's that's the way it works. That's it's it it's kind of part of their relationship, right? That would be okay, but that's not what he does, right? I, I wouldn't have been shocked if he had been kind of patronizing to Trotter, but he's not patronizing to Trotter. Um, he defers to him still, but notice the difference in um, in the published text. All Gandalf has to say is, especially if that ranger is Aragorn. Again, oh, case proven, QED, right? But notice how he goes on here, as I have found before. So Gandalf feels the need to, in the hearing of the others, he has to give a personal testimony, right? And I can testify that that means something, right? The ranger being Trotter, right? And then he goes even more. There are some things that even an experienced wizard does not notice. We had better stop talking now. In the published text, he just says, especially if that ranger is Aragorn, we had better stop talking now and rest quietly, right? That's a, just the authority of his name uh, is all that is needed. With Trotter, more is needed. So the interesting thing to me here is that Gandalf and Trotter's relationship, Gandalf still respects Trotter and defers to Trotter, um, holds Trotter to be the expert whose expertise in this area, um, that is in the area of interaction with the wild and and uh, and perception of the wild exceeds Gandalf's own, right? So that's still true, or is true, of Trotter and Gandalf. However, what is not true is the assumption of Trotter's standing among the rest of the company, that Gandalf has to, like, give a little bit more of a testimonial in order to make his suggestions slash order that they all submit to Trotter's whim here, you know, sort of follow along with Trotter's suggestion, um, is, you know, in order to, to back that up, he's got to provide evidence, which he doesn't provide in the final text. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. And I, 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 I think that you're right. John Caldwell and Brian Dimmick are pointing out that Gandalf's stature is also a little bit lower at this stage in development. Um, you know, that he isn't necessarily as experienced or comfortable traveling in the wilderness. Um, yes, that kind of, um, that kind of, you know, I, I would say, you know, um, you know, John, you referred to the self-deprecation of Gandalf, which is, which is, which, which is true, but actually. The thing which strikes me even more than the note of self-deprecation is the note is this sub-note, right, of sort of puffing up. But the fact that he calls himself an experienced wizard, like, uh, trust me, I'm an experienced wizard. So it's, it's like he, he has to present his credentials, right? I am Gandalf, an experienced wizard, and I can testify that. Like, And so I, I don't notice everything, but it's okay. I'm still like an experienced wizard in everything. I totally am. And I can testify that Trotter is even better at this than I am. And that whole thing is... Uh, much more complicated than it will eventually come to be. But again, at the end of the day, what it seems to me is I I, I think both halves, both what I was emphasizing and what some of you have been emphasizing as well, both Gandalf does not have as high a stature and he is going out of his way to establish Trotter and Trotter's credentials uh, to the rest of the company and, of course, to the readers as well. Um, You know, in book, back in book one, Trotter, he's obviously experienced and he knows what's what compared to the other four hobbits, right? But that's that's um, that's uh, that's no great mastery, right? I mean, that's uh, that's 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 not a big point of comparison, right? So uh, that Gandalf would really affirm it is sort of a big deal. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Let's see. Um, 
Yeah, good. Carson Cole is also pointing out about Gandalf lowering his own standing to some extent. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Hang on a second. Okay. All right. Next passage. Next Trotter passage. There we go. And tonight, said Trotter, we shall be high up on our way to the Red Pass of Criscaron. What do you think of our course now? This is, of course, the debate about the roads between them. If we are not seen in that narrow place, and waylaid by some evil, as would be easy there, the weather may prove as bad an enemy. I think no good of any part of our course, as you know well, Master Peregrine, snapped Gandalf. Still, we have to go on. It is no good whatever our trying to cross further south into the land of Rohan. The horse kings have long been in the service of Sauron. No, I know that, but there is a way, not over Criscaron, as you are well aware. Of course I am, but I am not going to risk that until I am quite sure there is no other way. I shall think things out while the others rest and sleep. Okay, now this is a really fascinating uh, passage, right? Because here again, we have another one of those moments where we have Gandalf and Trotter even more explicitly interacting as the two leaders of the party, right? Um, more explicitly because, of course, here they're deciding the path that they should take. They're, they're, they're trying to decide between them their road and not bringing anybody else into the discussion, right? It's obviously between the two of them. Of course, this is the same, the same discussion that Gandalf and, uh, and Aragorn have uh, in the published text. Uh but of course there is a very significant difference right their roles are completely reversed when aragorn and gandalf have this conversation it's gandalf who's advocating for moria and th- not only are their positions switched their dialogue is switched i think no good of any part of our courses you know well master gandalf <laughs> aragorn is going to eventually say right um so but instead that same line is delivered snappily by gandalf uh to uh to to trotter here in this moment um and uh you know, and Yana, that's a great point. Yana says, "Isn't it strange how Boromir is not at all part of this?" Um, yeah, I, I, even though he does have some stature, I mean, he's the son of the King of Ond, right? So that seems like a big deal. But, um, uh, but, but, yeah, he's not really, he's not really part of it. He's not really, he's not really considered. He clearly does not have the same standing as the two of them. Um, and uh, Tony, I agree with you. Tony Mead points out that Gandalf definitely speaks to Trotter like a hobbit with grumpiness and impatience. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's a, Julie. Uh, Dick just points out something that, uh, uh, who was it? Yeah, James Oakley had said, you know, James had just said, uh, this is apparently the, uh, the version that Peter Jackson read, right? <laughs> because, of course, they reversed those roles uh, in, uh, uh, in the film as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, people pointing out that he, he very nearly calls uh he very nearly calls Trotter a fool of a took. Um uh yeah, almost. But okay, anyway, but let's think about not just not not, not just noticing the difference, but let's think about what is the significance of that difference. So in the published text, right? Um Gandalf is the one who is advocating for Moria, not because he's super excited about it and thinks it's an, it's a wonderful idea, right? But Gandalf in the published text clearly has some kind of premonition, right? He has some kind of sense that, like, 
this is going to happen, right? His, he, it, it is the doom of the company to go through Moria, and he's got a sinking feeling that that's the case, right? So he's kind of confronting that idea. Aragorn is, he thinks no good of any part of their course from beginning to end, right? Uh, and so he's, but he's, he's not willing to try Moria until every other possibility is exhausted. He's not going to go down through the Gap of Rohan because it would take too far and who know, and we don't, they don't want to get that close to Saruman. Um, so it's either cross over the mountains or go through Moria and he'd much rather, even though he knows, you know, he's not at all, you know, sort of just suggesting that it's, that it's, uh, uh, will be easy to cross the pass, but he'd much rather. Um, so here's in this text now, um, it's Trotter, um, who is, he first approaches this by arguing, you know, the pass is likely to be a really bad idea. Here he is only speaking out of his experience as a ranger. He's been over these passes a bunch of times. Um, and he's like, look, there are lots of places where we could get ambushed, right? It's winter, so we could easily get snowed in. Um, you know, the weather may prove as bad an enemy. He's like, you know, this is really uh, not a good idea. So that I think no good of any part of our course, as you know well, the snapping by Gandalf is a sort of defensiveness, right? Of course there's no easy road. What do you want, Trotter, right? Um, Still, we have to go on. And there's no point going down to the Gap of Rohan. And then it's Trotter then who is like, but there is another option, right? Not over Chris Caron. And he is speaking speaking indirectly. He doesn't want to name it, right? Um... And Gandalf, of course, of course I am aware of it, right? But I am not going to risk that until I am quite sure there is no other way. Um, Gandalf Gandalf is, of course, the one who is now insisting on trying it no matter what. So the idea of Gandalf's premonition, right? His foreknowledge is too strong a word, but uh, his presentiment that they're going to have to go through Moria, that doesn't exist, Right? So there's no kind of ominous foreshadowing on Gandalf's part. Um, that's one of the major changes uh, that is being made here. But just the context of this whole thing, right? It's like Trotter's needling Gandalf. Right? I, I don't really need to tell you this, do I, Gandalf? Of course you don't need to tell me this, right? And him, him snapping back at him. The entire dynamics of this, uh, uh, of this conversation, of course, are completely different than we're going to see. And uh, yeah... John, this is the first reference to the Horse Kings of Rohan, right? They have finally emerged, um, and they're, they've long been in the service of Sauron. They're bad guys. Clearly, they're bad guys. You'll notice there's a bit of a trend here, right? Um, between Treebeard and the Horse Kings of Rohan, right? Um, we have two figures... The initial concept of which, right, the initial sort of early, you know, versions, that the things that will eventually grow or evolve or change or be adapted into the things that we are familiar with, right, whether it be Treebeard or whether it be the Rohirrim, um, when they're first conceived of, they're conceived of as, as, as bad guys, as obstacles. Why? Because they 
both of them are being conceived of as either adventures by the way or obstacles to their journey. Um, that seems to be one of the things which we're going to look at this again in a uh, in a second. Well, a few minutes, not a second. Uh, when we get to the, uh, I, I want to look at one of the passages when Christopher was talking about the map the, the, that he included. The earliest map of the the, the region south of uh, of of the Hobbit map uh, that Tolkien drew. Um, so in there, we'll be able to see this, I think, a little bit even even more clearly. But the way that this stuff emerged, remember, in the very very beginning, right back in phase one, um, when he was first beginning to write the story, and those first pro- plot outlines that we saw, when he was just trying to come up with stuff, right, come up with adventures. What are some incidents that can happen? You know, the witch house. And that's where, of course, where Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites came from was he he came up with an adventure that they could have along the way back when he hadn't the faintest idea where they were going to be going. Right. Or what they were going to be doing. Um, And so it seems like that's that's seems to be where a bunch of his story ideas are coming from. Right. He comes up with. Treebeard, because there's going to be because Fangorn Forest is going to be one of the one of the adventures that they have along their way. Uh, the Rohirrim are an obstacle in their journey, right? So there needs to be there needs to be an obstacle, possibly an adventure that they can have later on. And uh, and so, you know, the 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 Horse Kings of Rohan are born. The one exception to this uh, is uh, is of course the Kingdom of Ond, right? The Kingdom of Ond, the, you know, the, the land of Ond is not, they're not bad guys, right? They're not conceived just as an adventure or a monster or an obstacle to be overcome by the company. They are conceived initially as a potential ally, and they seem to be almost unique in that. I mean, unique in things invented that are not, that have no reference at all in The Hobbit. Um, so the, the fact that the elves of Mirkwood are involved, but not as an obstacle, is no shock, right? Because they're from The Hobbit. Same thing with the dwarves. Um, but all of these new things are coming in as, 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 as obstacles or challenges or adventures uh, along their journey. And that's where the Rohirrim come in, so it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, um, it's not surprising, right, that they've long been in service to Sauron. By the way, this is a lovely example. You'll remember, right, uh, how that stays in the published text, right, the idea that the, that the, that the Rohirrim are in service to Sauron. Um, it's going to stick around as a rumor, right? I, th- though it comes to my ears that that tale has been told, right? I've heard that somebody out there, some slimy jerk, has been spreading rumors that the Horse Kings have long been in the service of Sauron. And when I find the fellow who has been spreading these scurrilous tales around, right? You know, and of course it's Tolkien himself who is spreading those, those scurrilous tales around in an earlier draft. I love it when that happens. Absolutely love that. Um, it's like a really small version of the uh, of like what happens with the with the first edition of the Hobbit, right? And the after the the text gets changed, and we get like oh, these these false stories are floating around there somewhere. So, somehow they got into circulation. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. Um, so let's let's see. Let's. Oh, good. Yeah. Stephen Cover says uh, uh, it's kind of st- the 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 you know sort of the description of the adventures and stuff is kind of starting to remind me of the voyage of the Don Treader. There's an overall goal, but currently just a bunch of individual adventures to cross paths with. Yes, that kind of episodic story, um, like the Odyssey in a sense, right? Just kind of going from one place to another and having a, a series of adventures. Um, that's a, that that's a 
a, a sort of a normal storytelling mode, really. And yes, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a really great example of that. Um, and it seems that Tolkien's mind sort of begins that way, but of course, as we know, it doesn't end that way. Um, he may start by thinking of a string of adventures or incidents, but of course, he ends by bringing them all together into a much more cohesive whole. Um, yeah, you know, he is he is interested in much more of an overarching unity uh, than uh, you know than, than than Lewis showed himself interested in, for instance, in that book. Um, yeah. Yeah, and Yana, you're right. The Hobbit is similar to that episodic nature as well. We, I think that we can see that same kind of thing, um, that same tendency uh, in Tolkien's thought really fleshed out in The Hobbit. Um, and it doesn't ever really kind of come together in the same way, right? Um, in the same way that The Lord of the Rings does. Okay, um, yeah, Brianna, great point. Brianna Melvin points out uh, the voyages of Arendel. That you know that 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 <laughs> she says, uh, you know that finished text we've all read. Yeah, exactly that thing that Tolkien never actually wrote. Um, but you'll remember when we were talking about the tree men, right? And I I, w- I quoted you those two passages from the Book of Lost Tales, um, which gave that you know, that series of adventures that Arendel was going to have. Same kind of story, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, Let's keep going. Speaking of adventures, by the way. Suddenly they heard strange sounds. They may have been but tricks of the rising wind and cracks in gullies of the rocks, but it sounded like hoarse cries and howls of harsh laughter. Then stones began to fall, whirling like leaves on the wind and crashing onto the path and the rocks on either hand. Every now and again they heard in the darkness a dull rumble as a great boulder rolled down thunderously from hidden heights in the dark above. The party halted. "'We can't get any further tonight,' said Trotter. "'You can call it the wind if you like, but I call it voices, and those stones are aimed at us, or at least at the path.' "'I do call it the wind,' said Gandalf. "'But that does not make the rest untrue. Not all the servants of the enemy have bodies or arms and legs.' "'What can we do?' asked Frodo. His heart suddenly failed him, and he felt alone and lost in dark and driving snow, mocked at by demons of the mountains.' "'Okay.' This is, this looks like the transitional stage of the stone giants of the hobbits, right? The stone, that in the hobbit, clearly we have, you know, at the beginning of chapter four, when they're going up into the mountains, there are clearly literally stone giants throwing rocks around, right? Um, whom the dwarves, you know, the dwarves are worried. Thorin is afraid that they're going to pick up the, one of the dwarves and, uh, and, and, uh, kick him sky high for a football. So, um... Yeah, so we have actual stone giants who may or may not start playing rugby with the dwarves, right? Uh, but um, but since that's uh, um, you know a uh, that's a hobbit concern, right? And as we all know, the stone giants are one of those things uh, that you know they're 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 pretty high on the list of stuff that just kind of quietly vanishes between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, right? The, the Lord of the Rings never really uh, takes up. Um, and uh, here, you'll notice, this is, as I say, a transitional moment, right? Here we have something which sounds very much more like the Hobbit Stone Giant. So this moment, this incident, occurs in the published Fellowship of the Ring, right? But it doesn't sound like actual anthropomorphic stone giants chucking rocks at all. 
in The Fellowship of the Ring. Here, it sounds much more like that. Um, let's uh, pause for a second before we think about, of Gandalf's response there at the bottom. Um, and just think of the part before and after it, right? Trotter says, you can call it the wind if you want, but I say that those are voices and those stones are aimed at us. So he is inviting us to imagine, as in The Hobbit, right? And and we have all every reason to imagine it, because if we remember it from The Hobbit, you know, we, we can all... We're, we're even expecting it, right? The, you know, are, are they going to run into those stone giants again? And so they're, they're aiming rocks at the path, and, and, and so yeah, it's them. It's the stone giants, right? And, uh, and the narrator tells us that Frodo is feeling alone and lost, mocked at by demons of the mountains, right? Okay, so they're the stone giants, the demons of the mountains. Um, now, Gandalf says, Gandalf's words are a little bit puzzling in this. If it weren't for Gandalf's words, this would just be like, well, it's obviously, it's exactly the stone giants again, right? We know there are giants, these tree men, right? There's some wandering around in the Shire. Um, and, and we already know that there are some here in the Misty Mountains because we've seen him in The Hobbit. So, but Gandalf, Gandalf's words are the things, are, this is what makes this scene transitional, right? Gandalf says, I do call it the wind. Okay, so, uh, but that does not make the rest untrue. So, okay, so it's true that they're voices, and it's true that the stones are aimed at us. Those those things are true, or not untrue, anyway, right? Um, and yet, it's the wind. So it is the wind, but also voices. So the wind is blowing, but it is blowing with the voices of something. In what sense is the wind the voice of something else? How can that be a giant's voices if it's actually the wind? Right? I don't understand, Gandalf. Not all the servants of the enemy have bodies or arms and legs. Okay. All right. Um, that didn't help me, Gandalf. But what it does show me is that if I'm imagining, you know, an anthropomorphic giant chucking a rock, I'm not understanding what's going on. At least Gandalf is telling us that's not what's happening, people. Right? These are not just normal giants throwing stones. There is something gigantic. Stones are being deliberately chucked at them, right? There is a voice, a fell voice on the wind. Several of you are... Four of you have typed, It's Saruman! uh, In the line, and I will never forget. Uh, There were several moments... Uh, sitting in the theater watching The Fellowship of the Ring uh, when it first came out in, like, what was it, 2001? Um, several places where I laughed loudly and entirely inappropriately, uh, much to the annoyance of the people sitting around me. That was totally... I, I absolutely died. I lost it. Completely lost it when Gandalf says, It's Sorrow! <laughs> I was like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's fell voices on the wind. I was, I was, it's, it's, it's hilarious. But anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so what's Gandalf saying here? So at first it doesn't sound like it's very helpful, but it actually kind of is helpful. In other words, the stone giants are becoming the mountain, right? The evil will of Carathras that opposes them, and that, of course, remains in the published text. So, Carathras, the mountain, is himself a stone giant, in a sense, right? Not literally an anthropomorphic giant, um, 
but he's certainly gigantic, and he is a um, he is a uh, 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 malevolent personal will, right? There is a spirit to the mountain of Karathras, who's never explained, right, where he comes from, how long he's been there, what he's like, who he's affiliated with, and whatever, but uh, we never know any of those details about Karathras. Um, but but again, that that's kind of eventually where the, the, you know, really the only thing left in the Lord of the Rings that even recalls the stone giants from The Hobbit. Um, and this, I think, this quotation from Gandalf seems to give us that sort of moment of transition. According to Trotter seems to be under the impression that these are just, you know, normal stone giants. But, um, you know, not so much. Um, and, you know, Ben, I, you know, Ben brings up the stone giants in the Hobbit movie. You know, those are, are very uh, universally, well, no, not quite universally, but very widely ridiculed. Um, I will say you know, Ben Vetter points out in the Hobbit movie, the mountain becomes the stone giants. I kind of liked a little bit of that. That is to say the way that I, I it was, I, I totally agree with the, what everybody says about how hokey it was and everything, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about conceptually, right? What Jackson did by making essentially the mountainside come alive and turn out to be giants. I kind of like that actually. I mean, the, he, it seems like the Hobbit film in that moment is actually almost reaching for this concept, right? That the mountain itself is the giant in question. And it still does connect it to the Hobbit, right? So it's, it is the Hobbit story, right? So we do have giants throwing stones at each other, right? Uh, and endangering the party. But it sort of goes back to that wider view that we get in the Fellowship of the Ring, that it's really the spirit of the entire mountain. So... I mean, I, you know, again, I'm not tr- I'm not trying to say that it came off really well. The execution was 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 quite bad, but conceptually, I really actually kind of kind of liked it. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. No, I, I guess <laughs> several of you are critiquing. Totally agree. Again, not trying to defend it. Uh, but again, conceptually, I liked it. This is like me and the Hobbit films almost all the way through, right? So much about it that, like, in if you give it to me in summary on paper, I would have loved it, right? But the actual, uh, the actual execution was was so often so bad. Um, anyway, okay, let's keep going. Up on the mountains, the first conflict between Boromir. And Gandalf, uh, Boromir flashing a sense of humor and a personality for the first time uh, in this book. It is a pity Gandalf can't produce flame enough to melt us a pathway. I dare say it is, snapped Gandalf, but even I need a few materials to work upon. I can't, I can kindle fire, not feed it. What you want is a dragon, not a wizard. I, indeed, I think a tame dragon would actually be more useful at the moment than a wild wizard, said Boromir, with a laugh that did not in any way appease Gandalf. At the moment, at the moment, he replied. Later on we may see. I am old enough to be your great-grandfather's ancestor, but I am not dottery yet. I will serve you right. It will serve you right if you meet a wild dragon. Um, can I just say I love Boromir's line here, Right? Uh, I think a tame dragon would actually be more useful at the moment than a wild wizard. You know, that's that's uh, that's lovely. That that's really great. And 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 the way that he's jibing at Gandalf, right? Like, 
easy, Mr. Cranky Pants Wizard, right? We're just trying to we're just trying to troubleshoot this situation here. You don't have to bite our heads off all the time, right? Uh, so his characterization of him as a wild wizard and putting that in contrast to a tame dragon uh, is is great. I mean, that's that's witty. It's uh, uh, it's it's apropos. Uh, it's kind of you know, giving the same kind of sauce to Gandalf that, that the hobbits routinely do. So it's like Gandalf or Boromir seeming to kind of fit into the spirit of the, of the thing, even though he's of course very different um, from the hobbits and from, you know, not only from a, from a, from a distant land, but you know, he's a king's son and everything. So he's different in lots of ways. And yet he seems to be, you know, it's, it's, I mean, if you th- think about this party, right? It's Gandalf, a bunch of hobbits, and Boromir. So he's really kind of the outsider here, and we, it's it's like he's acclimating, right, to the group. It's it's fun. I I, I think it's um, I think it's neat. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kate Neville says, "I really want to see what life is like in the land of Ond if this Boromir is the prince." Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um. And of course, yeah, James, you're absolutely right. It is really fascinating to see how the role of Boromir grows in this moment, right? I mean, it's a big deal. He's the only man in the entire party, right? It's just him and Gandalf. So the way in which Boromir is almost single-handedly responsible for getting them out of the snow, and the hobbits are almost helpless. So, um, you know, Boromir's role is obviously much, much bigger and more important. It's a big moment for Boromir, the getting out of the snow. And we still... um, we still see that, right? We can still, uh, uh, even in the published text, it still emphasizes. Um, it's still a big moment for Boromir in the sense that it's one of the, it's one of the first things where one of the first moments where Boromir really distinguishes himself, um, as, you know, not only useful, but, but, but as really somebody fairly extraordinary, both in what he's willing to do and what he physically can accomplish. Um, uh, you'll recall that in the published text, that's one of the things that later on, Pippin, when Pippin is telling stories to Denethor, right, and trying to, um, you know, to, to, to share with him happy memories, Boromir's heroics in the snow is one of the things that Pippin's going uh, to focus on, right? So, so again, it, it, the sort of memories of this moment when this was the Boromir show, right, uh, still kind of linger. Um, yeah, so... This was a that, this was this was my favorite Boromir moment. Um, Christopher's contemplations on Trotter here, at the end of the Ringo South chapter. I would be inclined to think that the original figure, the mis- the mysterious person who encounters the hobbits in the inn at Bree, was capable of development in different directions without losing important elements of his identity as a recognizable character even though the choice of one direction or another would lead to quite different historical and racial identities in Middle-earth. So Trotter was not simply switched from hobbit to man, though such a switch could take place in the case of Mr. Butterbur with very little disturbance. Rather, he had potentially been Aragorn for a long time, and when my father decided that Trotter was Aragorn and was not Peregrine Boffin, his stature and his history were totally changed. But a great deal of the indivisible Trotter remained in Aragorn, and determined his nature. Um, I, I love this pa- uh, this passage as you know Christopher is looking forward to the uh, uh, the switch, which is not long down the road now, of Trotter to Aragorn, you know Trotter for Strider, um, and um, 
anyway, I think that it's um, basically what Christopher is doing here is saying much more articulate, articulately. <laughs> there's no more. There's no more ironic word to stumble over, is there? Uh, Christopher is saying more articulately the thing that I was saying last week as well. Um, this this whole business about the the shifting of one character for another. The difference is I would apply it to Treebeard too, Christopher. But anyway, um, this I but 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 I love this conception. So we have one role, right? This one sort of central figure. In this case, mysterious dude at the Inn in Bree, right? Um, and and then, as you said, it's capable of development in two different directions, either one of which is kind of potentially there or sort of implicit all the way through, but the one is not developed. So it's not just, so you can't just say Trotter is actually Aragorn. It's going to change the name, change him from Hobbit to a man, and boom, we have Aragorn. There's more to it than that. Trotter and Aragorn are not the same. You can't say Aragorn was originally a Hobbit. Aragorn was never a Hobbit. Right, um, Aragorn, the heir of Isildur, was never a hobbit. Trotter, uh, and, and nor does Trotter, the wild hobbit ranger, nor he's not going to survive in Aragorn. Right. Um, so this conception, the way that Christopher conceives of it, I think is is uh, is is really good. Um, it really makes a lot of sense to me. This this capable of development in two different directions. Right. Um, we're going to get the shift. And we can see so much is going to stay, but that doesn't mean it's just the transformation. Um, <laughs> Jennifer Pope says it's like the Tolkien uncertainty principle. <laughs> kind of, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's going to resolve into into one state or another when, when we observe it, right, down the road. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kate says she welcomed this uncharacteristic attention to the importance of character as opposed to just saying the name is changed. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I agree. Um, and yeah, Kate Neville points out that uh, um, she likes how this understanding the, of, of how the hobbitness lasts even into Aragorn's interaction with Mary in the Houses of the Healing. Remember when he 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 gets all uh Hobbitish, right? You know, he engages in hobbitry with Mary. Um Yeah, I, I, I Kate, I agree. It's like we can hear a memory of Trotter, right? That, you know, somewhere in there, you know, there is still there is still an echo uh of Trotter. You you can still hear the echo of Trotter's wooden shoes, right? Um and I, I think that's uh, I think that's that's pretty cool. But all right, let's keep going. Back to the Rohirrim. What? <laughs> My father first wrote here, amending it to the text given at the time of writing. But we have to go on, and we have to cross the mountains here or go back. The passes further south are too far away, and were guarded years ago. They led straight into the country of the beardless men, the Mani Oroman horsemen. In the rewritten passage, the reference to the passes further south is removed, but it reappears a little later. Further south, the passes are held. Before the name Rohan was reached, several others were written, Thonador, Ulthanador, Borthendor, and Orothanador. After Rohan is written, Rohandor equals Horseland. This is unquestionably the point at which the name Rohan arose. Okay, so... Uh, it's it is really fun to see Tolkien deriving that name sort of live, right? Um 
and we can see these other impulses that he has. Once again, though, we can see, although, you know, Rohan and the Rohirrim are here emerging for the first time, which is pretty exciting, of course, we can still see that they're still fulfilling the same role in that reference that we were looking at earlier on, right? That, namely, they're an obstacle, to the journey, right? It's it's not at all obvious that they're going to be a part of the story. After all, the whole point is that we're avoiding going in that direction, right? They're not on the path uh, of the party. So goodness knows why anybody would ever end up there, right? Um, Yeah, and very good. Um, (laughs) Arthur says, uh, he calls them beardless men, which is an insult, and therefore obviously untrue. Um, yeah, I, 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 Tomas, I agree. The Rohirrim are obviously not yet thought to be Anglo-Saxons at this point. That To me, that's one of the most important things that we see here, right? Um, it is impossible to think of the Rohirrim in the published text without thinking of all of the uh, Anglo-Saxon elements, right? of Rohiric culture and language, um, but they didn't start there, right? Um, there isn't a glimpse of Anglo-Saxon anywhere in this derivation, right? Um, we don't we don't get anything like that. Um, Stephen says they're not Anglo-Saxon in the published text either, right? He says that, yes. He says that in the appendices. believe him. It's not true. I mean, okay. It's like, they're not Anglo-Saxons, except for all of the things that they have exactly in common with the Anglo-Saxons. Um, Stephen, by the way, for the record, uh, my reading of that, com- when Tolkien makes that comment in the appendix, um, when he says, okay, they're not, of course, Anglo-Saxons, right? Um, here is what my personal opinion of what Tolkien is doing in that passage. He is covering himself professionally. Um, one of the things that's really fun, Tom Shippey is, of course, wonderful on these things. One of the things that Tom Shippey is, is so great on, um, showing us how many things Tolkien, like sort of speculative elements from Tolkien's professional scholarly world, he incorporates into uh, the depiction of the Rohirrim in The Lord of the Rings. So that, you know, everything from like, uh, like the, there are several examples of passages of an, of an Anglo-Saxon poem, which are of dubious uh, translation. Like, we, we're not 100% sure exactly what those words mean. Um, and so Anglo-Saxon scholars, Tolkien and his peers, debate about it, right? But there isn't general agreement, and there isn't enough evidence to be able to say, I definitely believe that this is it. So Tolkien never published a claim that said, like, this is how you interpret it. So what does he do instead? Instead, he puts it in the book, right? So there are several places where you can see him, again, if you know the text that he was debating about and the original text that he's reading in his scholarship and stuff, you can see he's taking a, he's taking a stand or making a guess, right? You know, he's sort of saying like, what if this were the way that we understand that? And so I'm going to, I'm going to write my book as if that were, right? But he doesn't have scholarly authority for it. So these things that he would never say in a scholarly context because he couldn't justify it with the kind of solidity that he would insist upon in a scholarly publication. So I personally believe that he makes that disclaimer in, what is it, Appendix F, I think, uh, of The Return of the King. He makes that disclaimer, the Rohirrim are not Anglo-Saxons. 
Nothing to see here. Totally not Anglo-Saxons. Because if he doesn't say that, then people might th- might mistake those who who knew, right? Might mistake what he was uh, doing for a scholarly claim. And he's like, no, no, I'm just playing, just playing, right? There are similarities, admitted similarities, right, between the Rohirrim and the Anglo-Saxons, but they're totally not Anglo-Saxons. I, I, he's kind of covering his butt from a scholarly standpoint, is how I read that. But of course they're Anglo-Saxons. They're like them in almost every way. Uh, really not a coincidence. Um, <laughs> Jennifer Pope calls it barely plausible deniability. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom Hillman says at Mythmoot, we need a what have the Anglo-Saxons ever done for us panel. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's just like that scene. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, okay. Um, but uh, right. Anyway, so but, but but it is very very worthwhile to note here. We don't get a whiff of an Anglo-Saxon word associated with them here, right? No indication. Now, that, does that prove that they were not already Anglo-Saxons in Tolkien's mind? No. But um, keep in mind, you know, there's sort of two elements of the Roh- in a sense, there are two elements of Rohirric culture, right? One is the Anglo-Saxon stuff. The other is the horse stuff because of course the horse stuff is not native to anglo-saxon the horses were not you know horses were not the central part of anglo-saxon society that they were in rohiric society right that that is the one major difference between rohiric culture and anglo-saxon culture um but it is interesting to see that this evidence implies doesn't prove but it suggests which one of those things came first right this was not hey i'm going to make anglo-saxon I'm, I'm going to put the Anglo-Saxons in my book, right? Except I'm going to make them horse folks, right? No. Instead, he has horse folks, which in in the end, he's going to end up making Anglo-Saxons, right? Um, but they seem to be horse people first, and they, you know, they're, they're what, horse, horse, horsemen? Horse kings, he's already called them? Living in horse land, right? Um, and, uh, uh, and, and their names, you know, the names of their land are entirely, are entirely elvish. Um, yeah, Tomas, you're right that uh, the uh, the the founders of Anglo Hengist and Horsa, uh, are, their names mean horse. It's totally true. I, it's, but but still, I mean, again, the Anglo-Saxon culture was not as horse fixated as as the Rohirric culture. I mean, it's just it's just not the same. Um, anyway, okay. Um, let's keep going. Speaking of Rohan, across the misty so this is from the map section. Across the misty mountains, further south, is written: "Place this pass into Rohan, further south." On passes over the misty on the mountains south of Carathra, see note twenty-two. At the bottom of the map, on the left, is written: "Rohan, Horse Kings Land, Hippanalitians, possibly K-N standing for Kingdom, Anaxipians, Rohiroth, Rohiroth." The and then Christopher has one of his uh, one of his classic uh, dry understatements. Right, the Hippolynesians and Anaxipians, horse lords, are surprising. He tells us without further commentary. Right, um, why is this surprising? Exactly, Jennifer, because those are Greek names. Greek Anaxipians is Greek. So not only do we not get Anglo-Saxon, 
uh, associated with them, we actually we actually get Greek associated with them. How about that? Um, kind of uh, shocking, isn't it? Um, at the right-hand corner is below. Here are the blue mountains. Compare Gandalf's words in the first sketching of the Council of Elrond, giant treebeard who haunts the forest between the river and the south mountains. The outline given on page 410, in which it is said that Fangorn Forest runs up into the blue, changed to black mountains, and the rejected note to the present text, in which it was said that Boromir was born a mountaineer in the black mountains. Um, okay. Uh, notice here, so the, the two things that I wanted to emphasize here. First, Greek names for the Rohirrim. I mean, that's kind of amazing. Um, but, um... <laughs> um uh, Tom Hillman says the born, born, you're born a mountaineer makes him sound like Jed Clampett. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, or Davy Crockett, maybe, Tom, right? Killed him a bar when he was only three. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, so again, the first thing, anyway, again, the Greek names for the, again, we've clearly not settled on Anglo Saxon for the Rohirrim, obviously, for the Horse Kings. Um, but the, the land south, remember, the land south, we have very little geography for this yet. Tolkien is clearly making up the geography as he goes along. He had the Hobbit map. Um, what, as Christopher points out, this map that he is currently giving commentary on in this passage uh, is clearly an actual extension. Like Tolkien working from the Hobbit map, right, and drawing what lies to the south of it. Um, and, okay, so he's doing this and he's, he's, so he's sort of making this, he's got some pretty vague ideas. There's going to be mountains down in the south, Right, the mountains, which will eventually be the White Mountains, though they're first the Blue Mountains and then they're the Black Mountains, and we know in the future they're going to be the White Mountains. Um, and we've got the Great River coming down, bending off towards the east and, and heading down in towards the south. Um, and, of course, we can see in the map, Fangorn, the river goes through the dead middle of Fangorn Forest. Right, And this, of course, makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense because of what we were talking about earlier, right? That we can see Tolkien conceiving of these adventures that he's sort of stringing together in a line, right? And the river is the line that, that, that he's stringing them along on. And so Fangorn and Treebeard, clearly, he's intended for a while that Fangorn and Treebeard are going to be an adventure on this trip, right? And so it doesn't, it's no surprise at all that the river should go straight through the middle of Fangorn, as, of course, it's not going to carry on doing uh, forever. Um, but um, anyway, so so it, it's interesting to see an actual visual representation of this kind of string of adventures uh, that, we, that, we come, uh, that we come to see. Um, yeah. Tony, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Back to the Greek business. This is an argument against those that say that Tolkien didn't like the classical languages and mythology. Of course Tolkien liked classical languages and mythology. Tolkien read classics at at at, uh, at Oxford. I mean, to, this was the guy who won prizes at, at his school, at King Edward's school, for his extemporaneous oratory in Greek. Uh, so, I mean, he he was very good at Greek and Latin, knew them very well. Um, you know, wasn't going to be where, you know, he loved Germanic philology much better. And so he shifted uh, uh, after his first year at Oxford from classics to 
uh, to philology. But uh, but yeah, it's it, the, don't ever let anybody tell you that Tolkien had this like antipathy for you know Greek stuff and for uh, uh, for for the Greco-Roman world. Um, yeah, Tom Hillman points out that Anaxippians is very Homeric. Yeah, yeah, and and why not? Right? I mean, that's uh, uh, there's 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 no reason why not. Um, the primary reason, Tony, the primary reason that people, uh, I think, get on that, um, you know, start beating that drum, the the, the anti uh, um, classics drum uh, for Tolkien studies, is because. Casual readers very often sort of come in with the assumption, you know, most people are at least a little bit familiar with Greco-Roman mythology. Um, and so when they start reading the Silmarillion, right, and they're reading about Manway and Olmo and all the, you know, the, the rest of them. Um, it's And I, I've seen this myself so many times teaching Tolkien uh, in, in an undergrad classroom. Um, it is very hard to throw the brakes on when the students want to start making the, like, okay, so Manway is Zeus, and Olmo is Poseidon, and it's like, no, wait, you can't just do that, right? Um, and it's hard to convince people sometimes that they can't just do that, because it seems so obvious. Well, it seems obvious when all you know is Greco-Roman mythology, right? But, uh, so, anyway, uh, it, it's obviously you can't do that kind of thing. But to go the other direction uh, and say, you know, no, 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 Tolkien hates Greek stuff, and, and there's no Greek mythology in Tolkien, um, you know, is is kind of silly. Um, yeah, yeah, Yana, exactly, as Yana says, he referred to one of his own languages as Elf Latin on many occasions, and you, you wouldn't do that if you hated Latin, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Anyway, okay. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. As Jennifer says, uh, if all you have is a Greco-Roman hammer, everything looks like a Greco-Roman nail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay, so one other comment that I wanted to make about this, about the map uh, in general. Um, it's pretty clear that Tolkien... Tolkien didn't draw the map first and then write his story afterwards. Um it seems pretty clear that his map is attempting to... This is a... First came his plot outlines, right? His lists and and, uh, and sketches, uh, verbal sketches of what was to come. Then comes his gesture at a map. Then comes his complete narrative, right? Though this map seems to... Well, I mean, the, of course, the exact dating is hard to, is hard to come at. Um, but I thought that the discussion that Christopher was giving of the actual discrepancy between the description in the text, which remains to the public, published text, and the, and the map is really interesting. Um, he clearly was not bound to them. I, I'm, I'm referring, of course, to that, that passage where, where uh, Mary points out that the, the mountains seem to be blocking their path, and he asks, have we turned east, right, in the night? And Gandalf says, no, no, we're still facing south, but the mountains curve uh, uh, out here. And, and the path that's drawn on the map uh, uh, actually does show them facing east um, because it wouldn't line up. The mountains that he draws wouldn't line up uh, the other way around. Um, so Tolkien advocated uh, in his letters drawing a detailed map first and then you know, using that for your story. 
and it's pretty clear that that's not, in fact, how he uh, how he did things. Indeed, his own map, his own sketch that he drew at about this time, contradicts his narrative and always did. Right? Uh, he never did change that narrative to fit the map. Anyway, okay. Let us move on to Moria. Look at this. We're making so much progress. They are not far away, said the wizard. They are in these mountains. They were made by the dwarves of Durin's clan many hundreds of years ago, when elves dwelt in Holland, and there was peace between the two races. In those ancient days, Durin dwelt in Karandun, and there was traffic on the great river. But the goblins, fierce orcs in great number, drove them out after many wars, and most of the dwarves that escaped removed far into the north. They have often tried to regain these mines, but never so far as I know have they succeeded. King Thror was killed there after he fled from Dale when the dragon came, as you may remember from Bilbo's tales. As Glowen told told us, the dwarves of Dale think Balin came here, but no news has come from him. Okay, so, um, remember Moria, Khazad-dûm, right? The mines of Moria, uh, which is not Khazad-dûm yet, right? Uh, Also recall, as Christopher mentioned, like offhand in one of his notes, the phrase, the name Khazad-dûm, exists already, in its final form. Um, it was in the 1937 Quenta, I think. It was the name of Nogrod. Um, it was the name of one of the dwarf strongholds uh, in the Blue Mountains when uh, uh, in, the, in the First Age, in the Silmarillion material. Um, it, was the, it was the home of the dwarves who sacked Doriath, was Chazadum. Right? Uh, it wasn't hyphenated, it was one word, Chazadum. Right, but it was the same word anyway. Um, so that name exists, um, but uh, but it's it's not um, it's not applied here yet. Even though we seem to be moving towards it, right? Karan Dun is its name, um, but which is still different from Hazad Dun from, from the same language, similar sounding word, but not the same name. Um, yeah, now, fascinating, isn't that? Uh, Arthur points out hundreds of years ago, right? Um, Durin's clan, many, it's still many hundreds of years ago, Arthur, right? But, but, but I agree, that doesn't give you a very great sense of antiquity. But I think that this is really important. Remember, Moria still does not seem to be the ancestral home of the dwarves, right? Certainly not the ancestral home, not, not even the ancestral, well, in a sense, it's, near the ancestral home, right? This area was where the dwarves of the the Lonely Mountain came from, right? They went off into the north, presumably to the Iron Hills and the greater Erebor region, right? But the place itself, we'll, we'll come back to this in a couple slides, but uh, the place itself is not the ancient ancestral home. It does not have... Um, I, I, I don't think it's just a, a question of expression there, Arthur. It seems to me that he is not intending this place to have the kind of ancientry that it is given later on. The images that we will get later on in Gimli's song of um, of of of, of Khazad-dûm, right, the wonderful Khazad-dûm song, uh, in which we get this image of of Durin, you know, naming the unnamed hills and dells, right. Uh, you know, he named the nameless hills and dwells. He drank from yet untasted wells. That sense of the primordial earth, right? The establishment of Chazad-dûm way back when the earth was young, right? That's not, that doesn't exist yet. Um, we have no reason to think that this was, like, notice, they were made by the dwarves of Durin's clan. Um, 
you know, so it, it's it's we don't get any any of that kind of ancientry um, associated with it. And of course, as you are uh, as you are pointing out, um, there is. Uh, there are no Balrog, as Jennifer, as you point out, of course, there's no Balrog yet, right? Just orcs. They're driven out, but they're only just driven out by orcs, particularly fierce orcs, right? But but just orcs. Um, so we don't have that sense. We don't have the sense of ancientry. We don't have the sense of disaster. That is to say, all things considered, Moria does not yet have anything like the status, the stature that it will later on become. It's just not that big a deal. Um, it's the place where the dwarves of Erebor used to live which is cool, right? Um, and it's a, it was a very rich mine where a lot of their wealth came from, which is also very cool. But remember, that's all it was. The mines of Moria, as which get referred to in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, seem to be just literally mines. Um, and uh, they still are, pretty much, right? Um, notice how Gandalf continues to call them mines, right? They have often tried to regain these mines. Well, that's why you'd want it, right? Because, like, you can mine stuff there. It's really useful, this place. But again, not that, like, we must return to our ancient homeland. We don't, we don't, we don't get that sense here at all yet. Um, Balin's undertaking isn't yet such a big deal. He's going off to establish a colony. That's a big deal, right? He's sort of establishing his own family. Um, his own family in, like, the Godfather sense, right? Uh, uh, you know, Balin is, like, one of uh, one of Dayan's capo regime, right, who's going off to start his own family, uh, you know, over in Queens or something. That's kind of the sense that we get with Balin uh, in this early draft. But he's not undertaking this momentous thing, right? He's not returning to reclaim the homeland in Khazad-dum. It's not, it's not like that. Um... Notice even the sort of the indefinite. So maybe he's here. Maybe his name. Maybe he didn't even come. We don't even really know, right? Because again, it's not. Ju- it's just not that huge a deal. Um, okay. Oh, Lee says, is this the last hurrah of Goblin instead of Orc? Not quite. We'll see. We're still talking about Goblins later on, but uh, uh, Lee, that is a really interesting thing to note, right? That we don't. We have not yet gotten to that shift. The linguistic shift, which is really just a linguistic shift. Orc comes from the Elvish languages. Goblin is the traditional English word. Um, I was going to say you could almost say that goblin is to orc as fairy is to elf, but that's not exactly right because elf is a traditional word too. Um, So that's not quite exactly right. Um, It's not really a good parallel, but but anyway... they're synonyms. Goblin is just the traditional uh, fairy tale word for that creature that is he's being he's using essentially as a translation of orc. Um, but we'll see all the way through the end of the Return of the Shadow, all the way through the first his first go at Moria. He's still going to be primarily talking about goblins, which of course makes sense because presumably they're related to the goblins who you know uh, captured Bilbo and the dwarves in the in Chapter Four of the Hobbit, right? Just a little bit further north of here. Okay. Going into Moria. Their adventures must be made different from Lonely Mountain. This is one of those wonderful sketches, plot sketches. Tunnels leading in every direction, sloping up and running steeply down. Stairs. Pits. Noise of water in darkness. Gandalf guided mainly by the general sense of direction. They had 
they had brought on bun- they had brought one bundle of torches in case of need to each. Gandalf won't use them until necessary. Faint spark from his staff. Glamdring does not glow, therefore no goblins near. How far to go? How long will it take? Gandalf reckons at least two days, perhaps more. Thought of a night or two in Moria terrifies them. Frodo feels dread growing. Perhaps his adventures with the ring have made him sensitive. While others are keeping up spirits with hopeful talk, he feels the certainty of evil creeping over him, but says nothing. He constantly fancies he hears patter of feet of some creature behind. This is Gollum, as it proves long after. Okay, so here's his first conception of the travel through Moria, right? Um, The darkness, the confusion. um, Everybody is terrified, right? Comforted by the fact that there seem to be no goblins near because Glamdring isn't growing. Um, but notice his emphasis. Part of, this, part of the initial conception of the journey is the distinguishing of Frodo from the rest of the Fellowship, right? Frodo's experience is different from theirs. They're, they don't like the darkness. They're afraid of the goblins. They're creeped out by the whole place. But the dread that Frodo feels is different, right? And we see that it's not just that he's in a different headspace from everybody else, right? Tolkien is immediately thinking in terms of the long-term effects of his experiences so far. Perhaps his adventures with the ring have made him sensitive, right? So he is sensitive to things that others are not. This is something, a way in which the ring is changing him, which is, which is interesting. I mean, of course, we've seen Tolkien experimenting with what it means, uh, what it means for the, the, uh, you know, for Frodo to have the ring, what it means for the ring to be getting, you know, d- developing an effect on Frodo. Um, and so we can begin to see uh, some of this idea here. And yeah, it's um, the the fact that this is Gollum. It's funny because a comparatively small deal is made of that in the published book. It's still there, right? The patter of feet and Gollum following, you know, Gollum picking up their trail in Moria is still a feature of the published text. Um it's interesting to me to see how large this loomed in the original conception, right? I mean, clearly, Gollum, as you can see from this description, Gollum picking up their scent there and Frodo hearing him following following after is on the very short list of like reasons the trip through Moria is impactful and important, right? If In the published text, if you had to make a list of like top five, you know, Plot consequences of the trip through Moria. Gollum picking up their trail might not make your top five list, right? There are lots of important things that happen there. Um, of course, the loss of Gandalf looming even, you know, looming particularly large. But, uh, but in the original conception, Gollum's role is, uh, is, a, is, a, very, is a very important one. Um, yeah, uh, Stephen says, is he wanting the tunnels to feel more dwarven mines and less goblin caves? Stephen, yeah, that's pretty much what I was thinking. Uh, um, so I think two things. That for, I, I assume, Stephen, you're thinking of that first sentence, right? Their adventures must be made different from Lonely Mountain. Um, I believe... So th- there are two ways that we can understand that, right? On the one hand, we can understand that, uh, given the way that he transitions immediately from that to the description of the tunnels and everything, right? Um 
I, I Stephen, I, I take it the way that you do, that basically he, he doesn't mean literally the Lonely Mountain. He means like the trip to the Lonely Mountain, right? So this is the second time that we have had Gandalf leading people through tunnels in the dark through the Misty Mountains, right? So um, he is wanting, this seems a note to himself, make sure that when you're describing this, you differentiate between this journey in the dark and Bilbo and the dwarves' journey in the dark, right? Um, and Stephen, the direction that you suggest seems to me to be exactly the kind of thing that um, uh, that would that would accomplish that. Um, it was explicitly goblin tunnels. It was the tunnels of the goblins that they were running through, trying to escape and get to the back door. Um, in the Hobbit, here it's not goblin tunnels. These are this is a dwarvish mine. And Stephen, I think, as you can see, the details that he immediately goes to. Um, right after he said, make it different, right? Tunnels leading in every direction, sloping up and running steeply down. Stairs, pits, noise of water in the darkness. The stairs really jump out at me, right? We didn't see any stairs in uh, in the Goblin Tunnels. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I think that that's a good way to, uh, uh, to, to think about it, Stephen. Of course, the other way that we could think about it is more broadly, right? I want to make sure that I'm not getting into a rut and just making the same kind of thing happen. Uh, here, but I, I, I think it's given the immediate segue into the description there. I think it's more it's more concrete than that. Um, yeah, Yana points out it's not like the secret tunnel out of Erebor at all. That was very even. Yes, but I think there's a good reason for that, Yana, and we'll come. We'll I'll come back to that in a second. If I don't say it, remind me, Yana, to come back to that. The gleam of light shows. This is still in the outline, the sketch that he's doing at the beginning. The gleam of light shows carved letters. Here lies Balin, son of Burin, lord of Moria. In the recesses are chests and a few swords and shields. Chests empty except one. Here is a book with some dwarf writing. Tells how Balin came to Moria. Then hand changes and tells how he died of an arrow that came unawares. Then how enemies invaded the east gates... We cannot get out of the west gates because of the dweller in the water. Brief account of siege. Last scrawl says they are coming. So I love that. That that awesome detail is there from the very beginning of the conception of the scene, right? Um, but uh, a few things here. Um, first of all, the son of Burin thing is really kind of interesting, right? Burin we met, or almost met, in Rivendell, right? He was going to be the younger dwarf who was changed, who was going to be Balin's son. Now Burin isn't Balin's son anymore. Now he's Balin's father, which is strange because he was Balin's son of Fundin in The Hobbit. Um, uh, but whatever. Uh, he's... We're thinking making him the son of Burin. Is it because Burin's name is closer to Durin? Therefore, sort of cementing, you know, um, Balin's not claim exactly, but, you know, sort of rights as Lord of Moria. Um, anyway, um, okay. The, and, of course, the book with the writing, because we need to find a way to... They, they A, they need to all be dead, but B, we want to find out what happened. So having them discover the book uh, uh, is the, the conception from the beginning. But notice, what happens to... What happens to Balin? Notice the similarity. The notice the difference between this story and the story of the published text, right? But notice also, in a bigger sense, the similarity, right? 
on the one hand, Balin in the published text is trying to retake Moria. There are plenty of orcs there already, right? And eventually they rise up and, and overcome them, right? Uh, and not to mention there's those drums in the deep, right? There's still the Balrog that is yet undealt with, uh, and it seems that it might have played a role in the final defeat of Balin's people in the published text. Now, um, again, the reference to the drums in the deep. Um, here, they're invaded, right? Enemies invaded the East Gates. It doesn't say explicitly that they were orcs, but they probably are. Um, but it's interesting, A, they're just driven out by orcs, but the orcs come from outside, right? The dwarks... The, the dwarks... <laughs> The orcs aren't there already, right? The dwarves come and they find Moria apparently empty and reestablish their place. Then the orcs invade and drive them out again. Um, So, again, not only is the establishment of Balin's colony not the big, huge return-to-our-homeland deal that it is in the published text, um, but it's not even as big of an accomplishment, right, Uh, on the lesser scale. Again, they don't drive the orcs out of Moria. They just come and squat in an empty place until orcs show up again. But remember I just said we can see these differences in the published text, but we can also see in a bigger picture the similarity. What I mean by that is the similarity to the published text is that the story of Balin parallels the story of the lords of Moria. Right? There's a, there's a sense in which it's a recapitulation of the story. They stir up the uh, nameless fear, right? And, you know, the enemies rise up from beneath and overthrow them as they overthrew Durin of old. Um, Not Durin the first, you know, but anyway, still. Um, You know, the, the whole Durin's Bane thing. But notice the same is true here. How did the dwarves of Moria lose? Because orcs invaded Uh, They came in from outside and invaded and drove them out. So once again, orcs come in and invade and destroy Balin's people. Um, And so so it is similar in the sense that the parallel with the older time is still still there. Um, Yeah, now, let's keep going. This is still that sketch, right? This is the end of that sketch. I love this. Um... I love this because I love to see... Just like those moments when Tolkien uh, breaks into dialogue. Remember, we've talked about that, right? How he starts off writing an outline, and then he gets carried away, and he's in, you know, and whole you know, exchanges of dialogue start coming in. This is the same thing, except instead of dialogue coming in, it's like the whole scene begins to take place in front of his, his eyes, right? And he just jots down what ceases to be a big overview of what's going to happen and becomes a quick outline of the scene itself, right? I think we had better be going, said Gandalf. Here's the dialogue coming in. At that moment there is a noise like a great boom far underneath, then a terrible noise like a horn echoed endlessly. Gandalf springs to door, noise like goblin feet. Gandalf lets out a blinding flash and cries, Who comes there? Ripple of something, laughter, and some deep voices. Gandalf says, There are goblins, of very evil kind, larger than usual, real orcs. Also, certainly some kind of troll is leading them. Plan of defense. They gather at the at east 
door, but south door is propped ajar with wedges. Great arm and shoulder appear by the something door. Gandalf hews it with glamdring. Frodo stabs foot with sting. Horrible cry. Arrows whistle through crack. Orcs leap in but are killed. Boom. As great rocks hit door, they rush out through east door, opens outwards, and slam it. They fly up a long, wide tunnel. Noise soon shows east door is broken down. Pursuit is after them. Here follows the loss of Gandalf. Okay. Uh, again, you see how this how this comes together, right? The, 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 the snatches of dialogue are coming. The blow-by-blow blow, uh, is sort of emerging, and it just, just kind of comes, comes rolling out. Even I love sentences like, arrows whistle through crack, right? As if, like, it's that one... With the with the, the 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 imagery intact and everything, it's just it's uh, it's unfolding right as he's uh, um, as he's as he's going through here. Um, obviously, we've got a major issue here. There's so much like the story. Now, keep, two things to keep in mind. Thing number one. Gimli and Legolas are still not... Don't forget, we are Gandalf, Boromir, and five hobbits, right? Um, Which makes for a significant change. I mean, uh, uh, Legolas and Gimli add a lot to the battle in the Chamber of Mazarbal, which is not yet called that. It's just called Balin's Tomb, right? So uh, Legolas and Gimli have a lot to contribute to the the fight in in Balin's Tomb. Um, But here, orcs leap in but are killed by Gandalf... Boromir and five hobbits, right? Uh, so that's that's an interesting thing. Um, okay. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, of course. There's an important somebody missing here, right? No Balrog. No whiff of a Balrog. In this outline... There is no Durin's Bane. Durin's Bane are just orcs, right? The orcs, the very fierce orcs that came in. And in a sense, we're getting that too, right? That seems to, you know, Gandalf says there are goblins of very evil kind, larger than usual, real orcs. In other words, these are the same big, fierce orcs that came in, or, yeah, obviously the descendants of them, uh, that came in and drove out Durin. Right, so we still have Durin's bane, in a sense, coming to Balin's tomb. It's just that Durin's bane is only a bunch of really big orcs. Um, and notice how this affects the flight from the room. Look at that last part again. They rush out through east door, opens outwards, and slam it. I love the opens outwards. Right again. Can you hear Tolkien visualizing this scene? Right. He even makes a note, like, because in his head when he's picturing it, he can see which direction the door opens, right? Um, they rush out through east door, opens outwards, and slam it. They fly up a long, wide tunnel. Noise soon shows east door is broken down. Pursuit is after them. So we have no stand of Gandalf by the door, right? We're just going to slam it and hope that it holds, and of course it doesn't hold. The orcs break it down and pursuit is after, so we get a high-speed chase, no caving in of the tunnel, no uh, spell of whole, uh, you know, no, no uh, 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 word of power to hold the door closed, no terrible counter spell from something inside. Um, it's just orcs busting down a, a you know, a, 
a big but perfectly mundane door and uh, and chasing after them. The loss of Gandalf from here would seem to be, was this what's going to happen when the orcs catch up with them, right? How is Gandalf going to be lost exactly? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Yana points out that it, it's interesting that the only hobbit who is said to have done any fighting is Frodo, not as we would assume Trotter or even Boromir is not given any action. Yes, Yana, though I don't think that that means that Trotter and Boromir aren't involved. I assume that in the orcs leap in but are killed scene, Boromir and Trotter would both be involved with that. Um, again, this is just... This seems to me that the whole Frodo stabbing the troll in the foot thing is one of those things that he sees very clearly. It's like, so he's jotting down that incident that he definitely wants to include, but I don't think it means that he's the only one who does any fighting. It's just that that's the character, that, you know, this one characteristic moment, which is an impo- which is going to be an important moment. Um, of course, more on the, the loss of Gandalf later on. Um, James, I couldn't help but notice the phrase goblin feet either. Uh, and of course, it makes me think of two things. Uh, one, James, that I assume it makes me think of the same thing that you're thinking of. And secondly, um, uh, Lee, also I was thinking of the thing that you were thinking of, Lee Smith had a little bit before, uh, said that, um, you know, the, go- the sound of goblin feet, might they be George McDonald's goblins? Um, cement shoes are noisy, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Um, so, The sound of goblin feet. Lee, I couldn't help but think of George MacDonald either. Um, The feet are the most characteristic thing about George MacDonald's goblins. And we know that Tolkien's goblins owe something to George MacDonald's goblins. He himself explicitly admits this. Um, And so, just yet, Lee, the use of that phrase got me thinking of George MacDonald's goblins as well. Um, And uh, it was it was kind of an interesting reminder. I'm not kind of sure where to go with that. I mean, I can't imagine that he's, you know, applying any particular detail or parallel from George MacDonald is particularly useful here. But but I was totally it it seems to me uh, an echo at the very least. Uh, of George MacDonald. But of course, the other thing which makes me laugh out loud is, James, what you were thinking of, uh, Tolkien's fabulous poem, Tolkien's first publication ever, right? Uh, uh, 1915, the, the, the poem, first poem that he published, which was called Goblin Feet, um, which he says later on in later life, he swiftly came to hate and he wished the thing were burned. Um, but, uh, uh, James, the juxtaposition of the goblin feet poem, because of course it's not actually goblins in the orc sense, of course, that the poem is about. He's using the word goblin as it was sometimes, in, in the poem, he's using the word goblin uh, as he as it often was used as a synonym for elf or fairy. Right? They're, they're fairies, they're elves that he's talking about. He's talking about the, little, the dancing of little fairy feet. Uh, uh, dancing and scurrying of little fairy feet in the night uh, is what he's talking about in that adorable uh, uh, and uh, really catchy little poem, Goblin Feet. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I, do I think he was intending it? No, I don't think he was intending a, a, a parallel to that at all. Um, but, uh, but of course, I couldn't help but think of it either, and it, and it sure made me smile. Um, okay, anyway. Let's carry on. Now we're 
back to the pros, right? We're back to the discovery of the... And of course, one interesting thing that jumped out at me from that sketch is the Watcher in the Water was only included in the brief reference in from the book, right? Balin's book. Um, that was the only hint that the Watcher in the Water incident was actually going to happen, right? But of course, we find that the Watcher in the Water is very much a feature from the first time we uh, from, from the first time we see it, right? From, from, from the first time we get there. And indeed... The fact that the stream has dried up and, and, and isn't running anymore, and therefore it's hard for them to find the way to the gate because they keep expecting to, to strike the Serenon uh, and aren't striking it, um, is made an even bigger deal of, right, in this version of the text. We must try and find a way around by the main path, said Trotter. Even if there was no lake, we could not get our ponies up the narrow stair. And even if we could, they would not be able to go into the mines, said Gandalf. Our road there under the mountains will take us by paths where they cannot go, even if we can. I wondered if you had thought of that drawback, said Trotter. I supposed you had, though you did not mention it. No need to mention it until necessary, answered the wizard. We will take them as far as we can. It remains to be seen if the other road is not drowned as well, in which case we may not be able to get at the gates at all. If the gates are still there, said Trotter. (laughs) Trotter, I love the way that Trotter just gives Gandalf guff, right? We don't get that. Aragorn doesn't act like that. Um, This is an exchange of Trotter and Gandalf that does not stay, right? The other two that we looked at, we will see Gandalf and Aragorn still saying those things, though, of course, in one case, they'll be switched, but but nevertheless, the exchange still happens. This is not an exchange that we'll see exactly happen. You know, Aragorn and Gandalf don't have this kind of relationship. Gandalf and Trotter do, largely because Trotter is a hobbit, and a particularly spunky hobbit. Um, notice how grumpy Gandalf is when he's in a fellowship with nobody but hobbits, and I can't help but remember the comment that Gandalf makes at the Council of Elrond when he says, minding all those hobbits is not a job for everybody, right? But I'm used to it, so I'll volunteer, and we can see, like, yeah, he's used to the constant aggravation of shepherding around a group of hobbits. Um... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Carson's saying they're all messing with him. No wonder he seems grumpier in this version. Exactly, because even Boromir has joined in the spirit, right, uh, of of the thing as we saw. Um, until things get a little chippy with Boromir here at the gates, right? So Gandalf has just said that he doesn't know the words uh, to to open it up. Um, the others looked surprised and dismayed, all except Trotter, who knew Gandalf very well. Then what was the use of bringing us here? asked Boromir wrathfully. He's wrathful, Boromir is. And how did you get in when you explored the mines, as you told us just now? asked Frodo. The answer to your question, Boromir, said the wizard, is that I don't know, not yet, but we shall soon see. And, he added, with a glint in his eyes under bristling brows, you can start being uncivil when it is proved useless, not before. As for your question, he said, turning sharply to Frodo, the answer is obvious. I came from the east. If it interests you, I may add that the doors open outwards with a push, but nothing can open them inwards. They can swing out, or they can be broken if you have enough force. Pretty snippy to Frodo here, too, right? The answer is obvious. I came from... I, I, I love the if it in, the snide, cutting uh, tone of if it interests you, right? Like, if you would care to think about it, you might, you know, you might be interested to hear that. Um, but I assume you're not interested in this, right? Because you're too busy making snarky, dumb comments and not thinking things through. Um, 
Uh, why did it have to be hobbits? Says James. Yeah, it would be like a caption under uh, under Grumpy Gandalf in this version uh, of the story. Um, uh, but notice that the tone is a little bit more easygoing. It's still tense in this moment in the published text. Um, Gandalf's words against Boromir are even more pointed in the published text, right? Where he, you know, do you doubt my tale, or do you have no, or have you no wits left, right? And which, dang, Gandalf. Um, but, um, but of course, Merry and uh, Faramond are still totally unfazed by the glint in his eyes uh, under his bristling brows, uh, and they can carry on giving him guff right after this, uh, right after this paragraph. Um, I thought Boromir's wrathfulness was interesting, right? Um, before, so in a sense, these seem to me like the the only two lines that Boromir gets, which sort of offer any kind of window into his personality, right? The uh, the 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 tame dragons and 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 wild wizards comment in the snow, uh, and the what was the use of bringing us here? He asked wrathfully here. Um, the first one seems to show him kind of acclimating to the hobbitry spirit of the fellowship. Uh, this one seems to show him standing out from it, right? Um, and speaking, no one else speaks wrathfully to Gandalf, right? He doesn't, um, uh, we, and we see Trotter at the opposite extreme, right? He's not even surprised or dismayed. He knows Gandalf too well to be put off by something like this. Okay. Look at that, guys. Slide 14. We're moving right along, right? I still have, uh, what, almost 20 minutes before I get to the two-hour mark, so we're doing well. He led them forward first along the passage in which they had halted. As the light of his wand dimly lit their dark openings, other passages and tunnels could be seen or guessed, sloping up or running steeply down, or turning suddenly round hidden corners. It was most bewildering. Gandalf was guided mainly by his general sense of direction, and anyone who had been on a journey with him knew that he never lost that by dark or day, underground or above it, being better at steering in a tunnel than a goblin, and less likely to be lost in a wood than a hobbit, and surer of finding the way through night as black as the pit than the cats of Queen Baruthio. Had it not been so, it is more than doubtful if the party would have gone a mile without a disaster. All right. Um, now, a couple things here. Um, yeah, Carson, isn't that amazing? Carson Cole says, The cats of Queen Baruthiel predate Aragorn. And he says he finds that insanely amusing. Yeah, yeah, Aragorn inherits the cats of Queen Baruthiel. He doesn't originate them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and no, they're not to fill those children, Arthur. Um, what I find it just this side of mind-blowing that it's the narrator who mentions the cats of Queen Baruthio. When was the last time the narrator did something like that? One point I would generally make one point I would generally make is the narrator's tone is has not completely shifted. One of the things again, you know, people will point out the uh, sort of awkwardness of the um, the, the awkwardness of the, the the talking fox or the thinking fox, right? How how the the whole tone of the narrator in that scene 
just is not in keeping with the narrator as we get him later on in even in the Fellowship of the Ring and certainly in the rest of the uh, in, in the rest of the book in, in the rest of the story. Um, that's less true in this early version, right? Um, this whole sentence is just the narrator going off about Gandalf, right? He's not addressing us in the second person, right? Um, it's not like in The Hobbit, like in the Riddle game, where he says, like, I can expect you can guess, right? Uh, but that's because you're sitting comfortably, right? Um, he doesn't do that. He doesn't address us directly in the second person. But um, but it's, he's clearly talking to us here. The narrator is talking to us in a way, like, over the head of his story, in a way that we don't get in the published Lord of the Rings outside of those first three chapters. Um, anyone who had been on a journey with him knew that he never lost that by dark or day, underground or above it, being better at steering in a tunnel than a goblin, and less likely to be lost in a wood than a hobbit, and surer of finding the way through the night as black as the pit than the, cla- the cats of Queen Beruthio. And of course, we don't have any idea who the cats of Queen Beruthio are, and we're not supposed to uh, to know that. Um... Uh, Jennifer is wondering, as black as the pit, the pit of what? Well, see, it's a good question, right? On the one hand, Moria is translated as the black pit, and I think that translation already exists, right? But, Jennifer, that would seem a little odd, wouldn't it? As black as the pit? It is the pit, (laughs) right? So, like, you can't call the dark of Moria as black as the pit, because it is the blackness of the pit, right? You can't compare it to itself. So I don't think it is Moria. Nor, James, do I think it's the Sarlacc, though that's a good suggestion. Um, I think it's hell. That was a phrase, black is the pit. That was a traditional English phrase. And it's talking about the pit of hell, is what it's talking about. Um, That's what I think. I think it's the reference to hell. Again, this is the narrator talking to us. It's almost like in The Hobbit when the narrator compares the trees, uh, again, in the first edition, compares the trees that the... No, this is still there in the later editions, isn't it? Anyway, sorry, compares the trees that the dwarves uh, are up in in the Out of the Frying Pan and the Fire uh, scene as uh, it compares them to Christmas trees. Not because they celebrated Christmas, but because we do, and we know what Christmas trees look like, and so he's addressing the modern audience, right? So I think when he says, finding the way through night as black as the pit, he's referring to the pit of hell. He's using the contemporary English expression, Yana, just like the comparison to the express train. Exactly. But here, in Moria, way... We're not in the first three chapters anymore, right? But we say, see... The, and then he caps it off with the cats of Queen Beruthio, throwing out this random piece of lore that, of course, we could have no way of knowing because Tolkien himself didn't know at the time, right? Um, the, the... These random cats that he's made up... Um, which reminds me, if anything, it reminds me of the Bull Roarer Took story in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, right? The story about the invention of the game of golf. It's not as whimsical as that, of course. Um, but uh, the comparison to, you know, his, uh, uh, you know, his great-granduncle Bull Roarer Took, um, we've never heard of them, right? But uh, anyway, um, 
so I just I find this a remarkable moment that Tolkien has still not completely his story has changed and grown tremendously from the sequel to The Hobbit that we saw him laboring to write at the beginning, right? Um, but it has not totally forgotten the Hobbit narrator, and that sentence is to me one of the most remarkable. I mean, of course, it's the Castle Queen Beruthia would stand out to me anyway, and I had the same reaction you guys had, you know, thinking like, "Wow, amazing to think that the Castle Queen Beruthia are there from day one in this passage, even before uh, Aragorn himself is," as you were pointing out, um, Carson. But, um, but it is to me the the even bigger deal is the fact that this is uh, this is an example of that old tone of voice of the narrator. Um, oh, good, that Christmas trees do appear in the published Hobbit. Matthew, I think I was confusing myself because I was thinking about the comparison of Elrond being kind as Christmas, which does get replaced, and he's kind as summer in the in the modern Hobbit text, the revised Hobbit text. So that's the Christmas. Re- he took out one of the two Christmas references uh, in the Hobbit, um, but not the other, and that I was confusing myself there thinking of those. Anyway, um, uh, ben, are those cats explained anywhere in Tolkien's writings? Yes, they are in Unfinished Tales. Isn't it in Unfinished Tales where we finally get the story of the cats of Queen Beruthia? Um, I think so. Yeah. So, look at Unfinished Tales for the cats of Queen Beruthia. Um, kind of a grim story, actually. The cats of Queen Beruthia. It's not very complimentary turns out. Um, it's, of course, a Gondorian story, because it's Aragorn who says it. So since it's since that line is given to Aragorn in the published text, it has to be explicable as, like, a, a proverb that Aragorn would give. So he makes it a story out of Gondorian history. But anyway, alright. Um, oh yeah, the other thing I was going to say about this passage. <clears throat> uh, and this one of you had mentioned this. Yes, Matthew, uh, you had talked about how you find it a little jarring every time Gandalf's wand is mentioned. I do too. Um, but we shouldn't. Gandalf doesn't have a wand. That is, if you're picturing a Harry Potter wand, Gandalf does not have a wand like that. Gandalf has a staff. It's Gandalf's staff. Oh, it's in the notes to Alderian and Arendus. Thanks, James. That's where you can find it. So in the in, in the notes to Alderian and Arendus, you can find the story of Queen Beruthiel. Thanks. It's his staff. Wand, staff, synonyms in Tolkien's language here. It's not a separate thing. I can't help but picture like a little magic wand, a little Harry Potter wand, uh, whenever he uses that word too. But it is clear that that's not what he's doing. Um, he talks about... Um, he talks about the light from his wand, right? Showing the light from his wand in one scene, and he'll say the light from his staff in another scene. It's clear. Those those words are synonyms uh, in his mind. And the place where we can see that clearly, Tomas, is exactly what you were just talking about. Tomas Delgado has just reminded us, of course, that what Gandalf's name means, uh, Gandalf, Alf, the A-L-F, means elf, right? And Gand means wand. So wand elf, that is the elf that walks around with a staff, is what Gandalf means. Uh, of course, Gandalf is the name of a dwarf uh, in the Voluspa, um, in, in the, from uh, you know the, the 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 old Norse Eddas, where the names are taken from. The, all those dwarf names. Gandalf is one of those dwarf names, uh, and that's because dwarves and elves are kind of synonyms in Norse. It's complicated, uh, but um, but anyway. Um, and yes, of course, Gandalf was originally Thorin Oakenshield's name, and then it got shifted to the wizard. But the point is wand staff is impl- like that synonym is implied in Gandalf's very name, 
right? Uh, so, uh, so yes, elf that walks around with staff, elfish, elvish being that walks around with staff is what Gandalf's name means. So yeah, his wand is his staff. Don't be distracted. Um, in in a sense, actually. I associate his use of the word wand here. To me, it's like his use of the word fairy in The Hobbit, right? He's not talking about anything different. He just means elves. But eventually he's going to drop the word fairy and only use the word elf. Similarly, he is later going to drop the word wand and only call it a staff. I I suspect for similar reasons, because people are thinking of something, you know, too many people are thinking of something different. Uh, The word wand I don't know, maybe one of the Inklings pointed this out to him. Maybe somebody told him, like, dude, you know, Tollers, people don't use the word wand for staff anymore. Those two words aren't really synonyms in modern English, dude, right? Uh, Maybe somebody told him that, and he changed it. I don't know. Um, But he's going to stop using that synonym eventually. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's keep going. More on Frodo changing, as we saw in the sketch. Their march was slow, and it began to feel never-ending. They grew very weary, and yet there was no comfort in the thought of halting anywhere. Frodo's spirits had risen for a while after his escape from the water monster, but now a deep sense of disquiet, growing to dread, crept over him once more. Though he had been healed in Rivendell of the knife-stroke, it is probable that that grim adventure had left its mark, and that he was specially sensitive, and in any case... He it was that bore the ring upon its chain against his breast. He felt the certainty of evil ahead and of evil following, but he said nothing. Okay. Um, I am very interested in the fact that Frodo's, the way Frodo is changing, what exactly is the mark that is left on Frodo by his grim adventure, Right? And the answer is special sensitivity. Special sensitivity to what? Special sensitivity to evil, right? The certainty of evil ahead and of evil following. Now, I don't know how to interpret that exactly. Does he mean there are evil creatures up ahead and evil creatures behind us, right? And I can tell that they're, I can sense them in some sense. So is it, that is, is it uh, spatially? ahead and behind that he's talking about? Uh, Ahead and following? Or is it temporally ahead and following that he's describing, right? That is to say, is his special sensitivity a premonition, right? The certainty of evil ahead. Evil is coming, right? We are about to confront evil. Evil is in our near future, right? The evil following would then be temporally past, which of course doesn't take much special sensitivity to know that evil has happened to you in the past, so that kind of breaks down the whole temporal thing. Uh, but in any case, um, even if it is simply spatial, um, that kind of sensitivity to evil is really fascinating. You'll remember in the published text, Tolkien shifts this to emphasize only his night vision, right? That he can see better in the dark than any of the other hobbits can. Um, Jennifer takes it as temporally ahead and physically following. Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, yeah. Um, but anyway, because, I mean, it does seem very likely that Gollum, Gollum following them is the evil that he is sensing, right? Um, so whether it is 
evil in pursuit in the form of Gollum and evil ahead in the form of the orcs, right? Who are both temporally and spatially ahead of them, right? Um, it's interesting, but okay, so what does this suggest then about the ring and the evolving concept of the ring? Does Frodo sense them because he is in some sense closer to them, right? As he becomes tainted by the evil of the ring, he, what, kind of resonates with this evil more, right? Is there a sense, perhaps still dim and distant, of like calling to like here from Frodo to the others? The fact that it's the mark left on him by his grim adventure suggests that to me, right? He is becoming, that what is happening to him is grim, um, and he's becoming sensitive, not in a positive, friendly way. This is not just like, and he has been granted special powers, right? It's not just developing a spidey sense, Karita, exactly, right? It's not just that he, he, he now has extra senses. Um, rather, why, uh, you'd have to ask the disturbing question, why, how can he sense evil? And if it's the effect on him of ring and wound that suggests that it's because there is this darkness, this evil, that taints him and remains in him. Um, I am interested in the way in which this passage also parallels the wound that he received from the knife with the ring. Right now, it's not like that's shocking and revolutionary, right? Uh, both of them were in. Both of them are ultimately oriented towards turning him into a wraith, after all. Um, so it's not like it's a out of left field comparison. Um, but what I, the reason I'm interested in that is again, it's still kind of early days in understanding the ring and how the ring influences people, right? Tolkien has said vaguely, like in his plot outlines, we've got to have the ring have more influence over Frodo. Well, okay, yeah, but what's that going to look like, right? How is he going to show? What kind of power over him is it going to get? How is it going to be manifested? Um, What's exactly going to be going on there? And the fact that he compares it to the wound, right? So the stroke of the knife that stabbed him, that injured him, but that left the tip of it in there, that worked its way in towards his heart, that is, the ring is like that, right? The poison of the ring has penetrated his person and is working its way in towards his heart, and if it gets there, he is going to die and worse than die, right? I mean, it's, it's, as soon as you think about it, as soon as you make the connection, you're like, well, obviously, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty obvious metaphor for the ring and the control of the ring, right? Um, but it's interesting to me to see that Tolkien seems to be thinking in that way here, right, as he's working out what the connection with the ring really is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> good. Um, James is wondering if the ring is becoming more active or stronger in the presence of evil. Hard to say, James. We don't get any indication here that the ring itself is changing. The emphasis is on how Frodo has changed. And not necessarily, by the way, that he's changing right now. Frodo now feels different than he did the day before yesterday, right? It's not saying that. This is the moment where he's becoming aware of a change that has happened to him since 
the incident, right, since his stabbing. But it may just be that he's never been in this kind of situation since then, and so this is the first time it's coming to his attention. Okay. We get to the chamber at the crossroads. It seemed almost a whole minute before there was any sound, so Sam, of course, is the one who throws the rock down in the well. It seemed almost a whole minute before there was any sound. Then far below there was a plunk, as if the stone had fallen into deep water in a cavernous place, very distant, but magnified and repeated in the hollow rock. "'What's that?' cried Gandalf. He was relieved when Sam confessed what he had done, but he was angry, and Sam could see his eyes glint in the dark. "'Fool of a fellow!' he growled. "'This is a serious journey, not a hobbit school treat. Throw yourself in next time, and then you'll be no further nuisance. Now be quiet!' Fool of a Gamgee, exactly, Arthur. Um, uh, and Jennifer, I agree. Fool of a fellow alliterates, right? So it does have that. But no, I agree with you. It just does not have the same the same ring. Um, I loved the Hobbit school treat, Arthur. Isn't that fun? Um, this is a serious journey, not a Hobbit school treat. Uh, I love that metaphor, right? Because it sort of shows... If it's a... If it's a, like, both of those words are, are interesting, right? If it's a school treat, like it's a school trip, then, like, you're a, a little kid, Sam, right? So don't act like a little kid on a field trip, right? Grow up, Sam. This is a serious journey, right? But also, it's not just a school trip. It's a school treat. It's not just, like, an educational field trip, right? This is, this is a trip that you go out with your school on as a special treat to reward you, right? Um... In other words, like, when it's all about you, right? When you've been taken out explicitly for the reason of being shown a good time, right? So that you might enjoy yourself to reward you for all the hard work that you've done, right? Um, Stop thinking that way, Sam. This is not about you. Stop having fun here. This is a serious journey. So I love the metaphor. Um, But uh, Tom says there are hobbit schools. I know, right? That's really interesting. Um, uh, and, 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 And Tom... Ham Gamgee sent Sam to a Hobbit school, right? Or maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Gandalf is making a social faux pas here, right? And uh, 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 he wouldn't. Sam never would have actually gone to Hobbit school. He would be like, "Oh, sorry, but of course you never went to Hobbit school, so never mind." Um, you know, I, uh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Tom thinks the school motto would be, "We mean no harm," possibly. Possibly. Um, but see, Jennifer, exactly. Jennifer says, what do they learn in school? Cooking? Right? Because it's not reading and writing. Exactly. Well, that's what I was thinking, right? That Ham, Ham Amgee, uh, who is apologizing to his cronies for the fact that his son has been, is literate, right? Uh, clearly would not send his son off to learn his letters. Um, yeah, Carita wants to know what the, what the Hobbit school mascot was. Uh I don't know. Any suggestion? See, I wouldn't think, you know, most American school mascots are chosen to be something fierce, right? You want to be like the fighting something or others, right? Uh, So so you generally choose something uh, uh, ferocious as your mascot, but I can't imagine that a hobbit school would choose a ferocious mascot. Um, (laughs) The Antwives, (laughs) says Brianna. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> Yana suggests uh, a bunny, maybe. Uh, see, yeah, the, the, uh, a thinking fox says Tom. The fighting taters. See, but I don't think they're gonna be fighting. I don't think I'm, I don't think that would be a thing for Hobbit schools, right? Um, I, I don't think it would be fighting. The conies. See, there you go, James. I'm a big fan of that, right? Yeah, the Hobbiton conies. I would, I could totally see that. Uh, yeah, yeah. A talking purse says Brianna. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah, good. Okay, anyway. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Um, uh, now, but Kate, you're right. Since the pub is named the Green Dragon, right, it does suggest that something fantastical could possibly be chosen, like the Green Dragon. A Green Dragon was chosen uh, for the name of the pub in Bywater. So, you know, it could be something fantastical. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay, sorry. <laughs> Getting distracted by the Hobbit School treat. Um, does anybody remember what Sam's name means? What it translates to literally in Anglo Saxon? Yeah, yeah, good, good. Several of you remember. Um, uh, 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 half wit. Basically, Sam means half and Riza means, you know, wise or smart. It's a, a half wit, literally, is what Sam Sam's name means. So foolish. Yeah. Um, I know my first reaction reading this passage and being like, Sam, no, it's not Sam. Don't make Sam be the dumb one. Let's keep Pippin in that role. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I know I get kind of shocked thinking about Sam being the fool of a fellow here. But then, of course, I got to remember his name and say, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, <laughs> kind of fits, right? Karina is asking why his parents hated him. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Jennifer Pope says, Wells, sir. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> Very good. Um, uh, yeah, but anyway, see, well, the thing is, uh, uh, Karina, is that both he, him and his dad both have, like, their names are both Anglo-Saxon jokes. Um, uh, uh, Hamfast uh, means uh, homebody, basically, like ham, which means home, and fast, which means, uh, like, uh, Stay, like standing fast, right? Um, so, Hemfast is one who sticks, who's who stay, who doesn't get out much, right? Who stays at home. Uh, so, Samwise is literally, you know, half wit son of homebody. Um, in other words, they're both hicks, they're yokels. That's the joke about the Gamgees. Um, and uh, Tom, I do think it does become a delightful thing that uh, we get, you know. It, the Shire is the land where that where you know where where, where half wit is mayor. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of hard on Sam, and he clearly outgrows that joke. Um, but um, but we can see that although he is outgrowing the joke in his name that he's a you know that he's a you know a half wit yokel. Um, the the joke hasn't been wholly forgotten. Right, he's still the fool of a fellow who throws the rock in because he's kind of foolish. All right, but the foolish fellow is not wrong. 
sometimes when we expect him to be wrong, right? Um, this passage is probably the one that shocked me, you know, that I find more shocking than any other in this whole chapter. There must have been a mighty tribe of dwarves here at one time, said Sam, and everyone as busy as a badger for a hundred years to make all this, and most in hard rock, too. What did they do it all for? They didn't live in these darksome holes, surely. Now, I'm sure that, like me, you can all hear Gimli about to bust in on him, right? Right? You expect Gimli's holes, right? You know, he's... Not only do we not get that, because, of course, Gimli is not present, there is no dwarf present... Not for long, said Gandalf. Wait, what? They didn't live in these darksome holes? Not for long. So no, the dwarves didn't live here. Not for long, anyway. Not for long, said Gandalf. Though the miners often took long spells underground, I believe. They found precious metals and jewels very abundantly in the earlier days. But the mines were most renowned for the metal which was only found here in any quantity. Moria silver, or true silver, as some call it. Ithil, the elves call it, and value it still above gold. It is nearly as heavy as lead, and malleable as copper, but the dwarves could by some secret of theirs make it as hard as steel. It surpasses common silver in all save beauty, and even in that it is its equal. In their day the dwarf lords of, of, Uruk-tha- of Uruk-tharbun were more wealthy than any of the kings of men. Um, Karita, when he says not for long, I believe he does not mean, Gandalf is not saying they didn't live here for very many years before the orcs came and drove them out. I believe that he is saying, no, they didn't live, they didn't stay down here for long. This is the passage I was referring to earlier that shows us most clearly the mines of Moria are still just mines. This is not the dwarven homeland. It's not even really a land. It's a mine. They didn't live here. Right? When so when Sam says they didn't live in these darksome holes, surely, right? This, of course, in the published text prompts Gimli's big speech about uh, holes? These aren't holes? This is the mighty realm and kingdom of the Dwarodelf, right? Uh, no, it's not the mighty uh, the mighty kingdom of the Dwarodelf yet. It's a mine where you get gems and metals. And the dwarves didn't live here. They lived above ground. It is true that they often took long spells underground. So they would go underground and they'd stay there for a long time, like days, weeks, maybe. I don't even know. But but they didn't live here. So, Yana, I think, was it you that was asking this question? Anyway, earlier, the question you were uh, asking about the... No, Yana, it was you who was talking about the difference when we were talking about how the tunnels that they're going through have to be different from the goblin tunnels. Or at least that's how we were interpreting that line. Um in the Hobbit, and Yana, you were pointing out that it's not like you know the way that the the the, the tunnel is contra- the tunnel into Erebor, the secret tunnel, the secret entrance into the Lonely Mountain, is contrasted to the Goblin Tunnels in the Hobbit, right? As it is like perfectly straight and exactly even because it's dwarven craftsmanship, unlike those shoddy tunnels of the goblins, right? And so Yana, you were very appropriately pointing out that we don't get that same emphasis on precision, um, which would seem to suggest 
well, it's dwarvish, but it's not quite as dwarvish as the Lonely Mountain was, I guess, right? But this is why. Erebor is their land. That's their kingdom. They live there. That is the, the hall of the king under the mountain. This is a mine. No, it's not as neat. It's not as nice. It's not as perfectly squared off and everything. Because it's just, this is just, they're just mining for gems here. They don't even live here. We are coming to habitable regions pretty soon. Um, which implies that they do live, or at least maybe that's the place where they stay when they're taking a long spell underground, right? Um, you know, that is when they come and they, you know, so they're like, what, I, I guess maybe barracks there for the miners when they're living there, for, and then they rotate out maybe and go back to where the dwarves really live, which is, I guess, somewhere above ground. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so this is to be, I, again, if you need any more assurance that Moria is not yet Moria, that Moria is not yet Chazadum, right? It's not yet the Duaro Delph. It couldn't be clearer than in this passage, I think. Um, I, too, found it odd, Arthur, that, you know, Arthur asks very sensibly, um, shouldn't it be Uruks that live in Uruk Tharbun? You'd think, Arthur, right? I mean, the word Uruks has been used... Um, but, um, I mean, I agree, Ben, that it does sound like a dwarvish word. I mean, Uruk Tharbun certainly sounds dwarvish. But Uruk has already been used, I think, for orcs. Um, so it's a little strange. Maybe it was called that, I don't know, after the orcs drove them out? No idea. Um, but, uh, Tony, I also am interested in the use of Ithil to describe Mithril, right? Because it is the elvish word for moon. It, and that elvish word for moon certainly predates this text extensively. I remember explicitly it being used at, uh, in The Lost Road when um, uh, when Alboin in The Lost Road is having one of his philological dreams and, and it's one of the words that comes through to him, right? That that the, the, the word for moon is ithil in one language, but isil in the other language. Um, you know, in Sindarin and Quenya, as they will later on become called. Um, so yeah, Ithil means moon, and that's what the elves call it. They just call it the moon. You know, they call it moon, moon silver. Um, but, um, anyway, we talked about before, there was no such thing as Mithril yet. Here it is. This is the invention of Mithril. So it is interesting that when we first get there, and an interesting question, at least I am interested in asking the question, why now? Why why do we get Mithril here? And I think I know the answer, or at least I can guess at the answer, in response to Sam's question. Right? Sam asked the question, uh, what did they do it all for? I mean, this is a lot of work, all these halls and everything. They didn't live here, surely. That would be an excuse for doing it, but they can't have lived here. So why did they do it all for? And Gandalf immediately admits, yeah, no, they didn't live here for long. So what did they do it all for? They must have had a really good reason, right? There must have been some inducement for them to put forth massive effort. And the inducement has to have been really good. Answer. A metal which was only found here in any quantity. Moria silver. And um, this is a pattern I think you can see in Tolkien. Um, 
my favorite place to see this kind of thing is in his later letters when people after the Lord of the Rings is published when people send him letters asking him questions and he answers them and it seems perfectly clear that he's making it up as he goes along right he didn't know the answer of the question till someone asked and then he sits down to answer the question and he's got the answer right um, this is a thing that seems to happen with Tolkien um, and I th- it seems to me that it just happened here Sam asked a very natural question that Sam would ask. What did, they, what did they do it all for? And when he asks, Gandalf has an answer. And in Gandalf's answer emerges, for the first time ever, the concept of Mithril. Right? Not quite yet called that. But, um, uh, but, but he comes up with the concept of Mithril, which explains why on earth they would, uh, they would do this. Right? Why would they do all these things? Um... Yeah, yeah, good. Kate Neville says she's put in mind of uh, uh, G.B. Smith's, uh, Tolkien's friend, G.B. Smith, who died in, in, uh, uh, in, in the First World War. Um, his reaction to the first A. Arendel poem, what does it mean, right? Uh, Tolkien creates Moria, and Sam asks, why is it there, right? And when Sam asks why it's there, Tolkien comes up with an answer. Um, yes, Ben, I agree. I was also struck by the fact that Mithril, in its original conception, um, was not super light, but super heavy. That's really interesting, isn't it? Um, now, when it, um, uh, when it makes, yes, uh, 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 um, when they make it into a metal through their secret way, it becomes hard as steel. I wonder, Ben, if, it, if, it be, if it's lighter, if the metal that they make from it is lighter. Uh, the, the armor can't be, can't be heavy as lead. Or it wouldn't be all that useful. Uh, but anyway, okay. The final bit, right? So we come to Balin's tomb, and uh, we stand there, as if with Gimli, with our, you know, hoods cast over our faces by Balin's tomb, and pause for a year or two. But before we get our final scrap, and what an exciting scrap of outline it is. I, I'm so excited that we not only ended The Return of the Shadow with another sketch plot outline, but what a sketch plot line, right? the, the sketch plot outline of the Bridge of Casa Doom, right? They are pursued by goblins and a black rider, written above a Balrog. After escaping from Balin's tomb, they come to a bridge of slender stone over a gulf. Gandalf turns back and holds off enemy. They cross the bridge, but the Black Rider leaps forward and wrestles with Gandalf. The bridge cracks under them, and the last they see is Gandalf falling into the pit with the Black Rider. There's a flash of fire and blue light and blue light up from abyss. Blue light, of course, is what Gandalf uh, shoots from his wand, right, from his staff, like lightning. Their grief. Trotter now guides party. Of course Gandalf must reappear later. Probably fall is not as deep as it seemed. Gandalf thrusts Balrog under him, and so something, something. And eventually, following the subterranean stream in the gulf, he found a way out. But he does not turn up until they have had many adventures. Not indeed, until they are on the borders of Mordor, and the King of Ond is being beaten in battle. So much here. Oh, man, where do we begin? Okay, let's begin with Black Rider. Holy cow. So, it's not a Balrog. It's a Black Rider, originally. Now, we can see that he shifted to Balrog. Notice, it's a Balrog. When they're falling, it's a Balrog, right? Because, of course, he's plummeting. It's got to be a Balrog plummeting, because that's what Balrogs do. But, um, 
the fact that it shifts to Balrog within the text here suggests that his writing it above up here happens pretty quickly. This is kind of like the scene when the 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 rider on the white horse comes around the corner when uh, when Bingo is sitting there with the ring on, and then Tolkien crosses out white and writes black above it, and it becomes a black rider. That seems to be kind of what's happening here, right? We have a climactic scene when Gandalf is going to fall, and we've not yet found out how Gandalf was going to was going to was going to snuff it. Uh, and so now we have the scene where Gandalf falls, and his first impulse is Black Rider, right? Um, so a, a ringwraith is going to come and fight with him on the bridge, and the two of them are going to fall. Um, and it becomes a Balrog by the time they get to the bottom of the gulf. Right. By the time he finishes this outline, he's already changed his mind and decided to make it, um, decide to make it a, uh, um, he's decided to make it a Balrog. Um, Okay. Um, yeah, good, good. Okay. Um, I don't know what to say about them seeing a Black Rider. I mean, on the one hand, the Black Riders are like the boss enemies, right, of the story so far. So the impulse to say, I'm going to have a boss enemy show up here and fight with Gandalf and that's how so he's not going to just have Gandalf taken down by orcs right he's going to have Gandalf taken down in single combat with you know in like a big boss fight right so that's pretty clear and that he would go to Black Rider makes sense again like who else is there right but remember the floodgates are open right to the Silmarillion material so he's like oh I know who else there is right there's a Balrog, so no problem. Um, But of course, to me, the most striking thing, Gandalf must reappear later. Christopher's comment, um, Tomas asks, how did the writer get there? No idea. Granted, we don't know where they got to, right, after the Ford of Bruinen. Um, but, you know, uh, <clears throat> presumably there's, there was time for him to get here, I guess, you know. Um, yeah, Yana, I agree with you. There does seem to be an impulse. Um, you know, y- Yana says, on the other hand, we have seen the riders defeated, and for Gandalf to be defeated by one, uh, uh, by one, Black Rider seems uh, kind of weak after what we've seen at the Ford of Bruin. And I agree. I agree. Uh, a Balrog is definitely I can upgrade right from the from the the Black Rider. Um, where is he flying? You guys are talking about him flying. I don't see where is he flying. He leaps forward. He's leaping. I'm not seeing what you guys are seeing. Uh, 
where does he... <laughs> just, there's no reference to wings in this pack. Are you guys just pulling my chain? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's way too late at night for you guys to be messing with me like that. Um, uh, oh, are, are you filling in the blanks here? Gandalf thrusts the Balrog under him, and so, like, so you're imagining the Balrog flapping his wings to slow their fall as they go down? Uh, <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, okay. Um, now, Tony, that's a really interesting idea. Tony Mead says, if he thinks he's near the end of the story, then he needs a final confrontation with those enemies that have been pursuing them. So that does make sense for him to bring, it, bring, in, bring in the Black Rider there. But of course, to me, the most significant thing is the fate of Gandalf in this passage. Um, let's go back to... Let's just scroll back for a second. I know we were at the end, right? So we can't have that. Um... Yeah, here. Here follows the loss of Gandalf. This is the end of that earlier plot outline, right? Notice he doesn't say, here follows the death of Gandalf. The loss of Gandalf. Um, I never said they died. I said we lost him, right? <laughs> yeah, channeling Treebeard now. Um, it never seems that he was planning to have Gandalf die. Um, Christopher says, and it, I... You know, honestly, to me, it's a little bit misleading. Um, I'm not saying that Christopher Tolkien is deliberately trying to mislead us, but the last words of Christopher Tolkien outside the notes in uh, uh, in The Return of the Shadow are, This seems to show clearly that before ever the story of the fall of Gandalf from the Bridge of Khazad-dûm was written, my father fully intended that he should return. Sort of. But that's not it. It's not that my father fully intended that he should return. No, it's that your father never really intended for him to go. That is to say, what's significant here is not that Gandalf's return from the dead was always envisioned. What's significant is that Gandalf didn't originally die. The whole point is that he's surviving the fall. I love the The fall is probably not as deep as, deep as it seems. That is like the most anticlimactic end to the Bridge of Khazad Doom sequence I can think about, right? They, they go over the bridge, which appears to span an almost infinite depth, right? And then Gandalf falls off and he's like, oh, 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 actually, there's a bottom right here. It's just, it's a bit of an optical illusion, guys. I'm fine, right? I, I can't imagine a more anticlimactic end than that. Um, but anyway, I know he doesn't say they're fine. They're grieving him, right? They think, they think that, uh, uh, they think that he's dead anyway. But um, uh, <laughs> but anyway, he's uh, exactly Kimber, and the the the, the Balrog is a nice a nice soft cushion to fall on, right? Which uh, cushions the fall, so that's nice. And I guess, uh, you know, Kimber, is that how the is that how the Balrog is meant to die? Right, that Gandalf squishes the Balrog underneath him, and then and Gandalf survives, and then he wanders off, following the subterranean stream out of the, uh, out of the the mountains, kind of like kind of like Ransom and Paralandra. Um, <laughs> Jennifer Pope says Glorfindel is shaking his head some somewhere. Yeah, exactly. You can hear in the background Glorfindel shouting, "Dude, it's not that easy. Trust me, I tried that." Um, <laughs> 
James Leback says, none have measured its depth, but that's just because they were kind of lazy. It really wasn't all that deep. Um, yeah, exactly. So, okay. Um, in other words, what I think we see here, which is exactly, one of you said this just a second ago, where was it? Um, uh, yes. Um, Yana, it was you, and Tony, both of you, uh, said basically what we get here is a recapitulation of The Hobbit, right? Gandalf needs to go away and leave them on their own and he'll rejoin them later on. It's done more dramatically instead of being like, bye, I have another appointment, as he said in The Hobbit, right? Uh, Instead, he's going to appear to die, we're going to fake his death, Right, so that they believe that he has died, but he's not really died. He's just been separated from them, and eventually he's going to catch up with them again. And apparently, right, he's going to catch up with them at a catastrophic moment. Right, the King of Ond is being beaten in battle, and Gandalf is going to show up. And you've got to imagine Gandalf showing up at that moment is going to be a dramatic moment. Right, I don't know whom he's going to show up with, if he's going to come with the eagles or, or what, but um, maybe, right, maybe the King of the Eagles is going to come flying in with Gandalf to help in the battle. That might be a thing, right? Um, but uh, but in any case, it, it is really just... Uh, it, Yana was just su- suggesting that, exactly. Um, this... Um, this is just, this is just, it's not a death, it's a separation, right? So again, the, to me, the significant thing is not, as Christopher emphasizes, Gandalf was always meant to return, but rather, he was not originally intended to die, and that's a super huge deal. And I think that says more than anything else that we've seen so far. We've mentioned several times that Gandalf has not yet become has not yet grown to the stature that he's going to have in the published Lord of the Rings. He's still much closer to the Hobbit Gandalf. Um, and I, th- here we see it more clearly than anywhere, right? Um, he, uh, um, he... The Gandalf who can confront the Balrog, fall into the abyss, fight, climb up to the top of the peak, throw down the Balrog, then die and return from the dead is a totally different creature than the Hobbit Gandalf. The Gandalf that only falls down a deceptively shallow pit, uh, squishing a Balrog under him to save his own life. Um, So, uh, a really interesting glimpse that we get of that here at the end. So, in a sense, you know, with the Bridge of Casa Doom, we're in a, like, so near and yet so far kind of situation, right, compared to where we're going to be eventually. Um, But it shows us some really interesting things. And with that, we have come to the end. Uh, and let's see, where am I at? I'm at uh, two and a half hours. There you go. So I don't know if you had two and a half hours in the pool, but that's uh, that's that's where we are. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining me. This has been super fun talking about the Return of the Shadow. I have loved our entire History of Middle-Earth series, um, but going through the drafts of the Fellowship of the Ring with you has been uh, particularly special. I can't wait to pick up with The Treason of Isengard, uh, which is, of course, the other book that won the election. We're going we, we're gonna to pursue our rule, which is our rule is no two books by any one author in a row, which 
has meant in practice since the beginning of the Mythgard Academy four years, almost four years ago now. No two Tolkien books in a row. We intersperse our Tolkien books with something else to make sure that we get a chance to talk about other things, too. Um, so, next, Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy, one of my favorite books in the world and one of the most influential books in the history of Western thought, uh, had a profound effect on Tolkien and an even more profound effect on C.S. Lewis. And we're going to talk about it starting on Wednesday, May 10th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We will be discussing Book 1 of The Consolation of Philosophy. I look forward to meeting you then, and then it will be on to the Treason of Isengard, and we will continue our exploration of the manuscript history of The Lord of the Rings together. Thank you guys so much. Um, I will see you guys three weeks from tonight for some Boethius. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye now.